Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Yes, sir. Tuesday evening, I am back. I weathered the storm and was able to get to my homeland to be able to bring you guys another great show. Welcome to the NGSC Weekly Show. I am your host, Joshua Zimmer, and of course, it's powered by NGSC Sports at NGSCSports.com. Uh, we're going to dive right into this thing because we got a lot, a lot of big news and a lot of big things happening around the sports world that we're going to talk about. But first, always got to throw it over to the the IQ, and to my brother from another, first of all, John Doucette, thank you for joining me again this evening. Ah, Josh, always good to be with you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's good to always have you on. And, of course, my draft teammate, my cohort, Montel Hardy. Montel, how you doing? Uh, doing just fine, man. Uh, as always, another cold week in Chicago, you know, it seems like. But, uh, hey, man. Uh, lots of uh, lots of talk on the way. I'm excited to do this. Hey, yes, sir. I understand the cold there. It's uh, it's getting chilly up here in Minot again as well. Uh, one place it wasn't chilly uh, was the NBA, and of course, the NBA trade deadline has come and gone. And there's a lot of notable names uh, and a lot of notable teams that decided to start making some moves and start dumping some players. Uh, the biggest one that sticks out to my mind is KG going back to the T-Wolves. Uh, I felt like, to me, that's going to be a storybook ending, uh, even though they're not going to be in the chance to get a title this year. Uh, John, who are some of the people uh, that decided to start making moves in terms of teams that really stuck out to you? I, I don't understand why Milwaukee traded Brevin, uh, Brandon Knight. Uh, that, that's a ball club that was playing very well a team that was above 500 and was, I, I think, is firmly entrenched in the Eastern Conference playoff picture. And then they decided to trade Brandon Knight to, uh, to the Phoenix Suns. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the thought process was behind that. They got Michael Carter-Williams back. I, mean, I know, but I mean, look, it's true, but it's a team that's been on a free fall ever since. Last night they shoot 34% and they lost. Um, I... That's an interesting move, and I'm, I'm not sure that that one's going to necessarily work out for them, even though they got a pretty good player back in return. But the one I think that really stands out is the Phoenix Suns and uh, the moves that they made with Goran Dragic and then also uh, uh, you know, trading him to, to Miami. Uh, there was some back and forth going on between him and management. 
there seemed to be uh, some serious discord between the two, lack of trust uh, between the two, which eventually forced uh, GM Ryan McDonough to make the move that he did in, in trading him to uh, to the Miami Heat. Uh, now, Dragic's first game for Miami last night was a pretty good one, 23 points, 10 assists, and helping Miami beat uh, Philadelphia 119-108. Phoenix is a team that's right there in the mix when you talk about the last playoff spot in the West. They had a tough night last night at home against the Celtics. Uh, I think that could end up being a trade that, uh, although you, you certainly needed to, um, uh, to clean out somebody that maybe uh, was uh, becoming somewhat of a cancer in that, in that locker room, but still, um, I think that was something that probably could have been handled in a way that would have allowed him to stay uh, with that team and, and help that team make the playoffs uh, Granted, if you get uh, uh, first-round picks, three of them, you get Marcus Thornton, you get uh, Brandon Knight, uh, who came over from Milwaukee, so you get a lot of uh, assets uh, that Phoenix can use down the road that, that hopefully will improve this team. But in the short term, uh, I, think that's, uh, I think that's the ugliest of the trades that was made, and obviously it was done for off-court issues. Well, and I was so happy that you brought up this trade because when I look at it, you know, you, you mentioned it, of course, the Suns getting Brandon Knight and Kendall Marshall and the Bucks getting Michael Carter-Williams, Tyler Enos, and Miles Plumley in return. But you look at what the 76ers got, a 2015 pick, first-round pick, excuse me, from the Lakers. Uh, it wasn't only a year ago, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, that Michael Carter-Williams was the rookie of the year or close to it. Why would you dump? I understand that the 76ers are god-awful and could probably get beaten by this year's Kentucky team, but why would you get rid of one of your stars and one of the faces of that franchise for, with a franchise that, when you look, doesn't really have a face and they haven't had one that you can argue with since, I don't know, Allen Iverson's been there? It's really terrible. I mean, to me, when you look at the trade and the way it goes – you know, and I tweeted out just after I read about the trade. I'm like, I don't even know how being a Sixers fan is still a thing. Uh, every time they seem to have the slightest bit of happiness, uh, either uh, front office uh, ineptitude or just uh, bad luck seems to screw them over. Uh, I mean, seriously, uh, Michael Carter Williams, uh, you know, still has a little bit. It still has, you know, ways to go in terms of learning game from a mental perspective as a, uh, as a, you know, um, as a prospect as a point guard, but. He's a very good player. He's the best player on that team, and he's one of the better scorers, uh, and obviously a heightened mismatch at the point guard position. Uh, and then they went and got in there as well. And so what you're thinking of is you got these two people. These are the young face of the organization. They're playing together. Noel's finally healthy and playing great. Um, but, you know, you trade one, you got the other now, and now you got to wait for Joel B to get healthy. I mean, they, they're spending their picks. They're moving them around. They're acquiring picks, but they're not – like ever getting anything. They're just recycling players for picks, and it's a it's a repetitive process. They also spend a pick on a player they won't get a hold of uh, because he's overseas. He won't, they won't get a hold of for another year uh, to two years. So uh, I don't know what the Sixers have going on, uh, but I guess no one really will know for at least a, a, another year, two years. You know, you, you mentioned, Josh, the, uh, the Kevin Garnett deal, which I thought was more of a sentimental thing than it was really anything else. Um, yes. You know, Brooklyn right now is in the eighth spot in the Eastern Conference, of uh, an opportunity to make the playoffs, and okay, fine. They would probably end up playing Cleveland in the first round. Um, but I, I thought that Brooklyn would probably hold on to him and, and try and make that run for that last playoff spot. 
And if Garnett wanted to retire as a Timberwolf, well, fine. You sign that one-day contract in the summertime, and you allow him to do it that way. I thought the Celtics did the same thing with Tayshaun Prince and sending him back to Detroit. Uh, Detroit is a team that the Celtics and Brooklyn are fighting for when you talk about that last playoff spot, and yet uh, the Celtics were willing to make that bit of a sentimental trade uh, by sending Prince back to Detroit where it started for him. So you had, uh, you had sentimental trades, you had an ugly one, and then you had others that uh, either helped one team or didn't help another one. It was a strange mix for uh, the NBA trade deadline, but it was an active one as well. And it's it's funny again that you say this, John. Uh, first thing I want to ask you: Did I accidentally send you my notes? Because that's was the next trade that I was going to get to. Because when you look at it, Garnett's obviously toward the back half of his career, if not definitely uh, starting to get low in the tank. And you look at Thaddeus Young. You know, that's the guy that they signed, uh, you know, to a pretty decent contract in the off season, and then they get rid of him, you know, months into the season. Uh, what does not only this say about the Timberwolves, but what could this potentially say about Thaddeus Young, about them getting rid of him so early? Uh, I know, like you said, that it was more of a sentimental deal, but would you really risk getting rid of Thaddeus Young, a guy who's been productive as a role player for you, and, and a quality one at that, for a guy who probably has two of the four wheels left on the bus? I think this trade was made to allow the Timberwolves to do something that um, obviously people in Minnesota will have a um, a thought on one way or the other, and that is the opportunity to retire Garnett's number. And I do think that that uh, led into this. I, I think there were fences mended between him and that organization that allowed this sentimental trade to be made, and I think eventually it's going to pay off in Garnett's number being retired by this organization. It's an organization and a team at the moment that's not going anywhere in a very difficult conference. And so I think that they just decided that this was something that they, they wanted to do, felt like they, they needed to do. And who knows, maybe Garnett plays a role in this organization when his days are done, which I think could be when the season comes to an end. So I, I tend to think that this was all about uh, you know mending fences with a player that uh, was a significant contributor to the beginning of that uh franchise getting stabilized in Minnesota. In Montel, like, we've got to ask for your take on this. What do you feel about the T-Wolves getting KG back? Uh, well, I agree with it. Uh, in every, in, in, you know, when you look at it from every angle, like uh, John, for instance, basically saw the big picture there. Uh, that's really what this is, is I think it's kind of a, you know, coming full circle, not only in his career, but uh, you know, just on the court and off the court with uh, what he felt for that organization and, and some things that are going on. And uh, I think another thing is just the the value that he can provide to what is a very uh, young locker room uh, there in Minnesota. And so, I mean, it's a team that's 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 bad right now, but they've, they've got a couple bright spots on that team. And, and one of those, you know, of course, uh, I'm sure we all know about Andrew Wiggins, but, you know, there's Anthony Bennett, you know, that, that first overall pick from just a couple years ago plays the same position as KG. So I think over this second half of the season, you know, we're a little bit past the second half, but uh, down the stretch, I expect him to try to learn a great deal from KG, uh, maybe take a few things from his game, and, and of course, continue to develop as a player because, uh, you know, he, he's fighting for his, his uh, I don't want to say his relevance, but he, he's still fighting for that, that great 
first-round player status because he didn't quite emerge in uh, in Cleveland. So I think all the way around this does prove uh, well for Minnesota, and it doesn't really hurt them. Uh, this is a team that's 12 and 43, so you know playoffs are you know long gone. Uh, so uh, th- this is a great move by them, and I think it's a classy move by them, and it's even classier by KG, uh, who's seemingly uh, excited to be there and uh, wanted to do it. It, it, it It's also going to put people in the seats for the remainder of the year in Minnesota. And I think that's also an aspect of this that, although it's not the prime reason why this was done, but still, I can't imagine that the Timberwolves are putting a lot of people in the seats to watch their home games. And Garnett is expected to make his debut for Minnesota tomorrow night at home. I would expect that's going to be a sold-out crowd. And I would think for the remainder of their home schedule, that's going to be the way it is. Mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed, and and that's the way I see it. And and like I said, this is a team with some budding stars here. So um, I just hope that they take something away from KG. Uh, just hopefully not some of the <laughs> some of the things you hear him say on the court. Well, I what I hope is that that Garnett decides to become a part of that organization uh, and work with these young players uh, once uh, his career is over, because I think that uh, that would prove to be even a better benefit to uh, having this all come full circle. Agreed. I just, you know, I just worry sometimes as a coach, on the coaching staff, possibly, sure. But, you know, I worry about some of these, especially the greater players, you know, whenever they take these front office positions, sometimes it's a, you know, it kind of gets worse before it gets better, you know. And I think in Minnesota's case, that's that's probably true. But I think at least you'd have somebody there that uh, is going to teach these young players how to be a pro, uh, how to uh how to get through the long schedule that is an NBA season, uh, the, the, the peaks and valleys that take place, of being able to uh, properly practice and, and, and all of that stuff that goes along with it. Having him around, I think, would be a, uh, just a tremendous benefit to a team that really does need uh, to have some, uh, some older and wiser influence around them to uh, kind of show them the way. Agreed. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And so I have to ask, Montel, in your opinion, who is the real winner? If you had to pick one team, who won in terms of the trade deadline? Uh, well, a lot of teams made themselves better, but you know what? I well, I think the biggest moves were made before um, the trade deadline, long before. I mean, you think about what Cleveland did, uh, bringing in Tim- Timothy Moskov and and going and getting J.R. Smith and uh, uh, Iman Shumpert. I think those were two of the biggest moves they could do, and they've been they've been cruising. Uh, got those guys in, uh, was able to sit them down and, and kind of work them into the lineup naturally. Everyone's making sacrifices with the ball, and that's that to me is the biggest move because uh, I think without those players, uh, you know, Cleveland, you know, is obviously obviously still a very good team. They just lack some of the depth they need, and especially that power in the front court they need, you know, to beat teams like uh, the Bulls, the Wizards, uh, you know, some of those taller teams, uh, lengthier teams in the in the East. But a team that did really help themselves, if we're speaking strictly about the deadline, you know, I like Detroit down the road. I've told you guys over and over, I really like the way this team is built because it's built out, inside out. So you've got Greg Monroe, Andre Drummond, and Drummond's such an incredible town. I think in a couple of years, it's going to be one of the, the finer big men in the NBA. Uh, and, you know, they made the move to go and get Tayshaun Prince. So he's another guy who will be ending his career, well, not completely where he started, but uh, definitely where he was at maybe the peak of his career. So I think that's a great story. Uh, also, uh, a thought here is uh, they went and got Reggie Jackson. And I think he was a forgotten-about guy uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, they didn't know how to use him because, you know, Russell Westbrook is their point guard and they want to, you know, run and go with this guy. But he's a very talented uh, guy. He's he's young. He can develop. 
And the one thing I like about Reggie is that he plays well without the ball. He can defend. He can come off the bench. He can do a little bit of everything. And uh, considering the fact that Brandon Jennings is gone, that'll give Reggie some flexibility to maybe work out on a wing, maybe be that, that second wing player they need to go with Contavious Caldwell-Pope. So uh, Detroit Lions, you know, they're starting to stretch that roster out and do some things. I still think they need another score um, or and, and maybe a more – true point guard, because I don't think Brandon Jennings is, is, is as versatile a guy as they hope he'd be, but I like where they're headed. And, and to kind of transition it, I know we started talking about basketball, but now you obviously, with the spring coming up, uh, we touched on it a little bit last week with my Chicago Cubs, but now all of the pitchers and catchers and players have now reported to their spring training sites. Uh, and obviously the biggest guy in the news right now in terms of the baseball world and uh, Major League Baseball is Alex Rodriguez reporting to the Yankees. Um, John, first and foremost, what's your take on Alex Rodriguez uh, seemingly sounding like that he's going to be able to play this year uh, from a health standpoint? Well, first of all, what would you expect him to say? Um, but look, he's got a lot of fences that he needs to mend, not only within that organization, but also within that clubhouse. Uh, yeah, he spoke with reporters yesterday, but he didn't really, his answers were vague about the variety of subjects, uh, which also is not surprising. Uh, he's not going to necessarily take total blame for uh, the, the suspension, the year-long suspension from a year ago. Uh, and he's He's still going to try and, and find a way to, to fit himself into a, a ball club that has begun the transition process with, with Jeter retiring, with Rivera retiring. I mean, this is a ball club that's now starting to turn the page and, and try and put together a, a new, new form of the New York Yankees. And, and to be honest about it, A-Rod doesn't necessarily fit into that, uh, that future plan of, of Brian Cashman and, and Hank Steinbrenner. But Unfortunately, because of all of the money that is still owed to Alex in his contract, they really have no choice. They've got to find a way to, uh, to get some use out of him. I found it interesting that he's apparently been taking ground balls at shortstop, and I can't imagine that the Yankees would even consider the idea of allowing him to play shortstop. But again, <laughs> it, just, it just shows that because you've got so much money tied into him, you've got to find something to do with him, some use to get out of him. And so I think the Yankees... During the spring, we'll, uh, we'll try him in a variety of ways. DH, I think, would be the wisest thing to go. But I think they're going to try and find a variety of ways to use him to see if they can't get some value out of what's left of his contract. Exactly. And, and John, or uh, Montel, excuse me, uh, same goes for you. Uh, what's your take on Alex Rodriguez? Um, in my opinion, I don't think he should be playing whatsoever. I think he should have had a complete band. But I'm just going to sit back here and uh, sit back on some coffee because it's none of my business to say who can and can't play in the league. Uh, well, Josh is sipping tea over there. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the way I see it is that uh, I look at him as a guy, you know, kind of like if you had your run in with the law. So, like, you know, Michael Vick went away for a while, uh, you know, went to prison, came out. In theory, uh, though he did do it with shades of gray, uh, Alex Rodriguez essentially paid his debt to baseball. You know, he's not lobbying for Hall of Fame. If that ever does come out of his mouth, then, you know, he's going to get some criticism. But uh, ideally, he's just lobbying for the chance to play again. Uh, he served his time. Uh, if I'm the Yankees, I would probably try to move him. Like I said before, there's going to be a team here that's going to want a guy 
um, you know, a, a DH. Like I said, they're going to move him, try to work out a deal. Cause I know he's, you know, very pricey, obviously. But there's going to be a team that wants him, and it's going to need an extra bat or at least just someone to sit in that lineup and threaten you, you know, enough to maybe uh, earn a walk here or there. Uh, but in terms of what's going on right there in New York, you know, he's taking his ground balls. Uh, doubt he's got the range to play shortstop, so I agree with John on that. You know, those days might be behind him. But at the end of the day, if you're going to make him, um, if he's going to earn that much money, then you've got to get as much use out of him as possible. And uh, unfortunately, you do have to play him on a fairly regular basis, too. And I think that's the thing is that uh, after camp's over in April, he will be an opening day starter. That's real life. Uh, I don't know what the Yankees' far system looks like and who they might have behind them in terms of adding, you know, some pressure behind them to play better. But I would imagine if you think about that left side of that infield, uh, I, I think he'd probably be, even after a 200-game suspension, he'd still be a nice level above wherever they'd have there, which is part of the reason why the Yankees should have spent a lot more time rebuilding their farm system because they're about to enter a very difficult era that they might not be able to buy themselves out of. It's hard to imagine that the Yankees could go three straight years without making the postseason, but that does stare them in the face. Yeah, absolutely it does. And, and, and it's what happens because, you know, the Yankees always get the guys after that second big contract, so they're about 30 sometimes when they come here. And to their credit, they get players when they're peaking in their career, some on the downside, uh, some on the upswing. You know, we all saw what, you know, some of these greater players were able to do. We saw what uh, Robbins Cano became before he left. And, you know, man, you wish you had a held on to him, but – uh, you know, you look at it, and, and it just, uh, you know, it is what it is at this point. They don't have a lot of great players in their minor league system, uh, but, though, you know, some of the top guys will play. And uh, maybe the Yankees, you know, in a year from now, just make a huge last free agency. That's what they do. But um, every team around them, even Boston, has made solid strides to get younger and better at the positions that, that matter, you know. And, um, you know, in, in terms of their farm league, they're a distant last in their division, and, in terms of their record, you know, they'll, they'll probably be a, a third-place team. I mean, that's a possibility if you look at the age and you look at how many players are priming on every roster. I, I think the problem for the Yankees is that, as you mentioned, their, their minor league system is not very good. Plus, they still have a lot of money on the books that they really just can't get rid of. And I think until they can begin the process of getting rid of some of that money, what they've got is, is what they're stuck with. Absolutely. And, and then, once again, C.C. Sabathia, that was another story. Came in at 309 pounds to camp. Man. And think about it. He showed up on, on ESPN radio telling you know the world, for those that listened, how great a shape he was in. His arm felt great, that he was looking forward to having a big year. And then he shows up in camp looking like that. Well, see, that's the thing is that he was, you know, he lost weight to get better last year. And he also lost some velocity. You know, there's some issues there. So it looks like a little bit of overcompensation, but I in, but in any sport, I think you do yourself a disservice weighing 300 pounds at this point in your career. <laughs> oh, I I agree. And and Montel, speak, speaking of uh, you know Montel said it best. Speaking of getting younger and better every year, the Boston Red Sox seemingly have picked up a new name. John, what's the deal behind this 19-year-old sensation that they've signed to a futures contract? Well, it's a $63 million contract, um, a $31.5 million signing bonus, plus a $31.5 million tax 
that they will have to pay to Major League Baseball by the 30th of July. The Red Sox, by making this move, have now overspent their international uh, allowment of money that they have. And so uh, uh, this is going to be, at least for the short term, the last kind of uh, dive in that they can make uh, in the international market. But uh, uh, this young man, uh, Yoan uh, uh, Mercado, is uh, from uh, Cuba, and he's 19 years of age. Uh, he is uh, a switch-hitting uh, infielder, uh, projected to uh, potentially play the outfield for the Red Sox based on uh, the fact that Dustin Pedroia is still here for several more years, and they just signed Pablo Sandoval. Uh, so uh, the need is not necessarily in the infield. Uh, this young man is being projected to, uh, to play in the outfield uh, for the Red Sox. Uh, scouts seem to think that uh, despite the fact that he's a switch hitter, that he's a better left-handed hitter than he may be a right-handed hitter. Uh, but the Red Sox plan for now is to allow him to spend the entire year playing at the minor league level, allow him to develop, and allow him obviously to get used to a brand-new culture and then hopefully next year bring him into the big camp and give him an opportunity to, uh, to make the big league roster. Uh, you know, there were several teams that were interested in this young man. Uh, he, uh, he impressed a lot of major league scouts and teams with the workout that were held in, in Florida, became a free agent on February 3rd uh, with the approval of the, uh, the U.S. government, uh, which uh, played a role in, in allowing this young man to come to this country and eventually be signed by a major league team. Uh, it's a big splash for the Red Sox. There's no question about it. For a team that got into the, the Cuban market rather late, I mean, when you think of some of the Cuban players that have already come to, this, uh, to the major leagues, and the, the Red Sox really weren't a part of it, but lately they've started to, got to, to get involved with that, with uh, signing Rusne uh, Castillo last year and now this signing this year. Uh, but uh, this seems to be the big one. And, uh, you know, hopefully if, if the Red Sox do this right, that this is a young man that could be a part of this organization for a long time to come. Yeah, and he's definitely going to be a guy that I'm going to be keeping my eye on throughout the year. John, who's a guy that you are going to keep your eye out for heading into spring training? Well, I, I mean, the Red Sox still have one more move to make, and that involves Alan Craig, a guy that really doesn't fit in at the moment. And, uh, you know, the Red Sox, I think, at some point during spring – uh, we'll probably have to make that one more deal, assuming that Shane Victorino is okay and, and is healthy enough to play uh, right field on a regular basis with Castillo, with Betts, with Daniel Navar, and even Jackie Bradley Jr., if you want to throw him in there. The Red Sox seem to have plenty of options to play right field, and Alan Craig just doesn't fit in. So I do think that uh, he's going to get a lot of playing time early on in spring training to try and develop a trade market for him, and then I think the, the Red Sox will eventually pull the trigger on whichever team can give them at least uh, anywhere from 50 to 75 cents on the dollar for Alan Craig. And Montel, I know you're a White Sox guy, but I know you're also just a baseball fan in general. Who's the guy that you're going to be keeping your eye on for during spring training? <laughs> um, wow. Uh, during spring training, uh, you know, if you look around, you know, there's a lot of teams that actually do have some great storylines. You know, you look at, uh, well, I mean, you can start with the White Sox. They have Brad Penny, you know, 36-year-old sinker baller in there trying to make camp, and uh, that might be interesting. Uh, you look around the league, uh, you know, there's word that – I think there is a word that there's a chance that uh, Barry Zito might go back. So uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really trying to see where this is going, <laughs> you know, because – Well, you know, what, you, you know yeah. what, Montel, that's another sentimental move, and that's mm-hmm. being done by the Oakland A's. 
It is. Another one of those sentimental moves that's being done. I mean, they're going to allow Barry Zito to have a chance to finish his career where it pretty much became a career. Yeah, and and the thing about it is, uh, uh, yeah, I thought he'd come back in like a bullpen capacity, but they're saying that he might be, you know, somehow a spot starter or something like that in their rotation. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Uh, it's going to be a great story. And, and just like I said before, I'm really interested to see how CC Sabathia is going to show up. Uh, you know, he's heavier. He said he'd be better. Uh, you know, it's just kind of like uh, it, there's there's a scenario where some things can go really wrong. And, and I'm not saying that the Yankees are a bad team or anything like that, but there is a very straight line they're going to have to walk to get into the playoffs or just compete. And uh, one of those, uh, you know, potential forks in the road is, is Sabathia's performance, as well as their death in the back end of the bullpen, because, you know, they let go of their closer from last year. Uh, he's part of the White Sox organization now. So it's going to be interesting to see just the overall depth of that team and what they're able to do with all that uh, that money that's sitting on, their, uh, sitting on their books right now, just like John said, they're not exactly getting the production they want uh, out of those uh, players. You know, the other one is, is the Cardinals now with Adam Wainwright, who ended up going back to St. Louis today with some abdominal issues. Uh, the Cardinals mm-hmm. have decided to send him back there to get looked at, and, and that could be a, a problem for a team that, uh, you know, really needs their horse at the beginning of that rotation to, uh, to make things work. You know, Texas already has injury problems, and, uh, you know, they've, they've reworked Adrian Beltre's contract so that uh, they can keep him around for uh, uh, a couple of more years, and uh, they don't have to get into that uh, the void potential of the, uh, the 2016 contract. So you've got teams already beginning the process of trying to, uh, uh, to situate themselves so that uh, they've got money to spend if, in fact, there's a reason to do it when the trade deadline arrives in July. Exactly, and, and one final thing. I'm going to really be watching the Washington Nationals this year. I mean, any time oh, I get a chance to watch that team, that's going to be some great baseball. I mean, first off, their rotation is is outstanding. I mean, any time Steven Strasburg might be like, what, the fourth starter? <laughs> like, scary, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really scary. Um, and I was high on Doug Fister when he pitched at Seattle because he was a guy who, low ERA guy, uh, you know, real smooth uh, with some of his pitches, not exactly a power pitch or a crafty guy. If that dude's at the bottom or, or anywhere in the middle of your rotation, you've got a very solid rotation. So uh, I'm going to be really watching the Nationals. I want to see, you know, what these pitchers do in spring training. Uh, obviously, I'm hoping they all stay healthy. And, and I wanted to see, uh, you know, how they get that momentum established uh, heading into the regular season. I will say this. The Jordan Zimmerman situation is one that uh, the uh, the Nationals do have to uh, solve. I mean, he'll be a free mm. agent at the end of the year. He's mm. probably going to command a lot of money on the open market. I think the Nationals are going to have to decide whether or not he's a part of their future plans or whether they need to uh, uh, potentially do something with him. Uh, I think that the Nationals will probably hang on to him because you never have enough starting pitching. But I yep. do think that that could be the one situation that, um, if it's not handled properly, uh, could become a distraction to a team that's really set up to make a playoff run. Yep, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I definitely am going to be keeping an eye on the Nationals. Um, also going to be keeping an eye on my Chicago Cubs and their top prospect, Chris Bryant. Another thing that I've been keeping my eye on out for the last, uh, it seems like forever, uh, that we've been finally waiting for this, is Floyd Money Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. 
And if nobody knows by now, it is now an official fight. Uh, they're going to be fighting, I believe it's May 2nd. Uh, so, first and foremost, what are your thoughts, John? Uh, it's a fight that's about money. I mean, Mayweather's guaranteed $120 million. Pacquiao is guaranteed 80 This thing's about wow. money. I, you know, and, and look, I, I give Mayweather credit. I mean, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy or, or somewhere in between, and, and there are people that will go a variety of different directions with him, I will say this. If you get involved with Floyd Mayweather, you're going to get rich in a hurry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think Money Mayweather is the only guy I know uh, in terms of being able to watch on TV as an athlete that will go to Vegas and put, you know, $3 million in a, in a duffel bag and call it good and say that's good enough for a weekend. So uh, he certainly does have a lot of money. But in terms of why it took so long, it's seeming like they were waiting just to figure out now that we've it's official, but basically it was a money thing. Uh, you know, like you said, John, but we were waiting on, oh, well, we want him to do this uh, from Pacquiao's camp and Mayweather's camp saying, oh, well, we want you to do this. And so Josh, how are let's face this. Look, if, if you're going to get in the ring with Floyd Mayweather, you're going to play by his rules. That's it. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, he's got more to lose than anybody, right? Exactly. I mean, about so you're going to do this by his rules. And if you don't want to play by his rules, you don't get to play and you don't get the $80 million. Yeah, and you know you know how Floyd Mayweather is. I mean, first off, he's, he's wagering what could be, I believe, boxing's only undefeated record, right? So, I mean, he doesn't care. He'll he'll fight, uh, you know, uh, Maidana. He'll he'll fight Maidana again. He'll he'll go and fight, uh, you know, another young up and coming guy. He, he doesn't care. You know, he's not going to you know sacrifice this and sacrifice that to push himself because people want to see it. If he's not going to feel comfortable, if, if everything doesn't really dictate it, because I'm sure we saw, you know, some of the reports he wanted Manny to be drug tested throughout the uh, process. He wanted, you know, it, it had to be catered to Floyd. Um, Pacquiao, you know, he wouldn't fold. And you could tell the entire time that Pacquiao's more of a gamesman. He's like, play for the honor of the game. You know, why do we care about records? I'm going to fight you. You want to fight me? Let's let's be men about this. And Mayo well, was like, well, 80 yeah, million yeah. is 80 million. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what? The entire time, you know, if, if okay, if we're talking about uh, Manny having the same uh, the same thought process as Floyd, Manny would just hold out longer because so, ideally he'd want to be paid like Floyd, but he's not, you know, and that's, that's what happens when you fight Floyd. So, um, but, yeah, I'm with you, and, and I'm finally glad that it's, you know, it's settled because people have been talking about it forever. I, did, I was overthinking it would never happen because they – have reached a, a window in time where, you know, the feasibility of it is, is dwindling. Um, if it wouldn't happen this May or this December in 2016, this is a, you know, a, an old thought. This is a 30 for 30 special, you know, the fight that never was. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm glad it's happening now. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I really would have preferred to see this in 2010, but um, I guess better late than never. Well, let's face it. Boxing still needs Floyd Mayweather because he is the guy that really is at the top of the mountain that wherever he fights, whenever he does, is going to create an audience that boxing really, really needs uh, in general uh, because of, uh, you know, the dwindling interest based on really MMA. So I think that uh, they're going to cater the Floyd Mayweather as well because, well, they have to. I mean, he's just got the leverage. And I think that uh, in these negotiations, you saw just what kind of leverage Floyd Mayweather possesses. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and that's my biggest thing is uh, that, you know, you guys have been mentioning money, money, money. 
you know, and it, it is all about money with Mayweather. Uh, but you also have to look at it, too. He is, like you said, John, boxing's face. Uh, he is that polarizing figure for the sport. Uh, I mean, I don't think you're going to hear anybody else talking about Manny Pacquiao or some of the other, you know, I'm not a big boxing guy, or some of the other boxing names, but the only name that everybody can remember is Floyd Mayweather. So, again, you know, so you, you guys have, you know, hit the points on the fact that, you know, he is the, you know, the money man is going to make his money and it's going to be all about money and that it is going to be catered to him. Uh, but what I'm... But, Josh, I will say this. The one thing about Floyd Mayweather that you can't take away from him is when he steps between those ropes, he usually delivers. No, yeah, no, that's the thing. Is that, you know, if you look at tape of his last few matches, he's skating through it. I mean, if you ever thought this dude ever thought he would, you know, stress out or lose, he, he wasn't. I mean, in the Madonna fight, things got aggressive, but, you know, you look at the Alvarez fight, I mean, he was just chilling. You know, he said, I'm going to come in here, I'm going to protect myself, I'm going to counterpunch, and I'm going to get out of here with a win. Um, and, and, and that's what happened. So, um, but one thing that Josh, you brought up too, and I agree with this, that this may be one of the, the last few, this may be, you know, just that transcendent fight, you know, of, of this generation at this point in time, um, especially as boxing isn't as popular as it used to be. Um, I don't know if there'll better be another boxing match as well hyped and as well publicized as, uh, Mayweather Pacquiao is about to be. Uh, I think that's what makes it so important. No, and, I, and, I really, and, really, yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And, and the only thing that obviously would top it is if Manny Pacquiao found a way to win. <laughs> I wanted to pick him. If they had a fought three years ago, two years ago, even last year, I'm picking him. But I, I don't know if I can pick Manny now, man. I don't know because his speed is his thing, and when you get older, man, it's it's not it's not always easy. But uh, what I He's a look, well, I, 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 I think yeah. we would both agree the guy's a warrior, and I think that you're getting in the ring with somebody who is such a technician that uh, being a warrior could end up to be your uh, well, your death knell, actually. Yeah, no, he's he's the type of guy where he'll go all at it, he'll give you everything he's got, and he's got the he's got the mentality, he's got the all-in mentality to try to beat more, you know, uh, you know, he'll he'll do the little nasty things you need to do in the ring when you guys are tied up. To, to get in your head, to bother you, and to maybe gain a bit of an advantage, and I think that's really important. Uh, I'm just really curious to see uh, how these guys match up. And, you know, when you got the, the undefeated record with Floyd Mayweather, you can't leave any doubt to these judges because um, they're going to give it to Floyd unless you completely put this man on his behind. Like, they, they, they basically will. You know, if it's, the, if it's a decision, uh, it'll, it'll be Floyd that gets the call. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, th- there's no question Vegas is, is going to obviously lean his way because, well, Vegas needs him as much as boxing does. Yep. Yeah, which brings me to my next point. John, who's going to win and why? Oh, I think Floyd Mayweather will win. I, th- the man's the best. And I think that, uh, you know, for him to lose, somebody is just going to have to step in that ring and simply be better than him. And it hasn't happened to this point. I don't think it's going to. Montel? Uh, defense, defense, defense. That's exactly what Floyd Mayweather specializes in. Uh, the last guy to even, you know, bring a slight cut on his face had to kind of headbutt him to do it. You know, it was he defends himself way too well. He protects himself way too well. The only way, I really think, the only way at this point you can beat um, uh, beat Mayweather is to, is to knock him out because he's not he's, – he's too fundamentally sound. He's going to get the best of you when he needs to. So he's going to do everything he needs to do to win. 
And, and unless you come in there and dominate him, which his defense won't allow you to do, he's going to continue to win. So I, I got to give it to him. Um, you know, I've seen tape of Pacquiao. I mean, seriously, 2011, 2012. I mean, this guy, ferocious. And then we saw the fight happen where next thing you know, Pacquiao's face down, you know, and it's, it's pretty ugly in the ring. So I'm just saying he's – I mean, I'm sure both boxers are on a decline, but I think Pacquiao's is a little steeper. So any other year but this year, I probably would have picked him. But uh, I, I got to go with Floyd Mayweather this time around. And it's it's still a tough call, man. It really is. I, I think for Manny Pacquiao to win this fight, he'd have to turn it into a street fight, and I don't think Floyd Mayweather would allow that to happen. No, no, he's not a desperation fighter. He hasn't nope. ever had to fight that way. That's the thing, though. If you really hit this guy, he, I mean, what's he going to do? You know, he won't let you do it. But he's never really had to play, you know, from behind and really face some adversity in those late rounds. He never really needed a knockout to win. So that's the thing. It's, it's all about putting him in a certain position. <laughs> well, folks, uh, you have it. John says it's going to be Pacquiao, or John says it's going to be Mayweather. Montel, you say it's going to be Mayweather. Hell, even I agree it's going to be Mayweather. But I have a fan who just texted me saying it's going to end in a draw. I'm going to leave it nameless. He knows who he is because I know he's listening. Well, you know why? You know why he would say something like that? Because you want a second fight. Oh, God. And when's that going to happen? Like 2020, 2021? Yeah, exactly. I mean, but you want a second fight. That's why you, you want something to end in a draw, or if you want something to end in, in some sort of a, a disputed controversy, which forces them to get back in the ring again. You know, I, exactly. I, would, believe, I would believe it. And that's, that actually brings up a good point. Do you really think that the judges might allow that to end in a draw just so we could see? Mayweather Pacquiao 2.0. Everyone, with the amount of money that's going in from an advertising perspective, but the amount of, there are people who already, matter of fact, as soon as they announced the fight, the MGM grant was booked solid. Booked solid, like within 24 hours. So the amount of tourism Vegas is going to get in is going to be crazy. The people that are already planning this trip is crazy. And so they go all there, and they see, even if it's one of the greatest draws in, in boxing history, they will demand, you know, they will riot, okay, because they will demand their money back. Because the whole point, the whole, uh, the whole, you know, reason why you do this is for some finality to end the debate, not to continue. Now, so, ugh, it, it, it'd be messy if they did that. Oh, absolutely, it would be messy. And think about it. You, you get the heavy hitters that'll be showing up in Vegas to, to gamble all morning and all afternoon leading up to that fight. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the casino itself is going to make a tremendous amount of money that day, maybe even that weekend. So, I mean, the, with the amount of money that could potentially be made by several different sources, the idea of this becoming a draw, people would scream fraud up and down the, uh, the strip. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I am going to oh, leave yeah. you with this note. I'm going to leave you with this note, John. If you do decide to go gamble, uh, don't gamble a whole lot. Oh, no, I, I, I certainly wouldn't. But, I mean, <laughs> let's face it, we all know that uh, there are going to be some serious, heavy-hitting players that are going to show up in Vegas, and that's going to be their thing. They'll gamble in the morning, they'll gamble during the afternoon, and then they'll go to the fight that night and then probably gamble after the fight's over. So, I mean, uh, there are way too many opportunities for too many people to make money here for this to be end up in a draw. Yeah. Yeah, well... I guess we're going to have to wait till May 2nd and see. I got a feeling. I do like the, the controversy that could be sitting behind it. 
Uh, I'm not sure boxing could handle that kind of controversy. <laughs> it really, it really couldn't. But in a way, I, it I, might yeah. make boxing great. You know, again, right? Because it, it'll get it in the papers again, and, and maybe some people will try to draft off of the excitement from this fight and, and throw some middleweight, welterweight bouts out there. You know, so. I don't know, but I would definitely feel like I got hoes if I spent thousands of dollars to uh, get down there uh, to get to the fight, to watch the fight, to spend the night down there and have a vacation. Also, I know I'd have to do it again in a year <laughs> or, you know, six months, you know, a year, two years, five years uh, because it was a draw. So, well, I'll say this. If, if, if something did happen that, you know, either a draw or Mayweather loses, I don't think it would take that long for Mayweather to get Pacquiao back in the ring again, because of the leverage that Mayweather possesses. So I, I don't think you'd end up having to wait all that long. I think the best thing that could happen for boxing is that this becomes a great fight and that uh, regardless of who wins or loses, it at least puts the thought in people's minds that if they did this again, it would be worth it. Yes. Yes, exactly. And folks, we're going we're gonna to throw a wrench into things with you. Uh, normally we do our for real after the first hour break, but we decided to throw a wrench at you. We're actually going to do our for real now. And I got such a good one that I'm going to go first this week because it's been itching at me all day long. You talk about controversy in boxing. Let's talk about some controversy in football. To the Cleveland Browns, all I have to say, for real, you guys for the last two and a half weeks have been just marketing and marketing and marketing and just secretly teasing fans about this glamorous and exciting new face and logo that you're going to have for the Cleveland Browns, only to release it to this morning and find out that all you did was change the colors and the font on your logo. And then you guys wonder why not only you guys have a hard time keeping fans, but maybe winning some championships. Nobody wants to wear those ugly brown and orange uniforms. Doesn't matter. You made now. You made them highlighter brown or highlighter orange, so it doesn't have to go anywhere there. So that's all I gotta say. It's just I can't even say for real. I just gotta say, come on, man. Like you guys are a multi-million-dollar company, and you tell me that the best thing that a multi-million-dollar company could come up with is just changing the colors. I I don't know. I'm at a loss for words. Like, good luck to Cleveland and all their Cleveland fans wearing wearing those new highlighter orange jerseys. <laughs> ugliest to be on TV. Now look, gosh, you got to remember, there's an advertising staff involved with that organization that probably sat around a, a table for hours, coming up with, you know, some way to uh, to change the advertising to create more revenue for this football team. And after spending probably way too much time in, in a locked room, this is what they came up with. And they landed on that. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, and to me, you know, first off, it's, it's, it's an issue on two levels. One, because it totally lacked creativity. Two, because first off, I mean, you're the Cleveland Browns, and now you just made yourself really like orange, okay? And, and I've always saw that as kind of a contradiction, right, you know? They kind of, if you're going to be the Cleveland Browns, then, you know, be brown, dude. You know, maybe brown, white helmet, you know, find find something to do with it, maybe where you can incorporate all three or just one. But uh, if you're the Cleveland Browns and your logo is like a very bright orange and you don't really have any symbol, really, I mean, some people associate a dog with it. 
um, cool, I guess, but completely unofficial. Um, but it, it's just it's very disappointing. It really is. Exactly, like you said. And, John, you gave them a good argument there for about two minutes. What? You gave them a, a very viable argument for two minutes, saying, hey, there's advertising guys that are involved in this. But I tell you what, I'm sitting here at my desk, and the color of their helmet happens to be the color of the Gatorade that I'm sipping on. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. That's okay. not a very good thing for a multi-million dollar company. I mean, well, look, not, I mean, look, just because they had advertisers in a room doesn't mean they came up with something that was, you know, intelligent or, for that matter, can sell. Well, and I'm going to throw a rink in it right now. I'm 24 years old. I just got out of college. But my creativity level, I'm going to share you guys with it a little bit. You're called the Cleveland Browns. You're known for the dog pound. Matter of fact, your most viable and representable logo is the face of a dog. Hmm. Why not have white helmets with an updated logo of your dog pound symbol? Would be much no, cleaner. No. Yeah. No. Would be much cleaner than orange helmets. I mean, you got, but you got, and I know you say no, and I'm saying that that might be a bad idea, but I tell you what, it's a little bit more creativity than just saying, hey, you know what? Oh, no, I'll give you the creativity thing. Fine. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you points on that one. But the idea of putting a, a dog on the side of a helmet, no. <laughs> Well, I don't know. They got to do something. I mean, look at the beginning. Uh, Arizona Cardinals logo was about 15 years ago when I was growing up, and I wasn't very intimidating. I was just a, that was just a bird. Now, yeah, what about? Yeah, what I'm not a big fan of the Patriots logo. Oh yeah, I was just exactly. I mean, you did more by doing less with the Patriots logo. You got to look at it that way. But I mean, yeah. the, the original Patriot logo was a a uh, uh, what was known as Pat the Patriot, and it was based on the Revolution theme. I mean, that was always as I was growing up. That was the logo that I always saw on the side of the helmets, and frankly, the one that I have always uh, identified with this team, as opposed to the one that they have on there now. Yeah. You know yeah. what? And that's why yeah. I brought. That's why I like that they brought those AFL jerseys back uh, for some games to do, because I think that logo is great. It was a logo that I grew up watching when I was young. Uh, I mean, probably, you know, early 90s. You know, they started changing their logo. Well, I believe it was probably 98 or 99. They changed that logo. Uh, when they right, when Robert in- Kraft took the, took the football team, yes, the logo was changed. That's right. But it, it, you at least got to have, I mean, you know, we, we keep talking about logos all we want, but, you know, even the Miami Dolphins logo, eh, it's a dolphin, but at least they made it look a little bit cooler for fans instead of a dolphin wearing a helmet. Uh, but at least so, it at least it keeps the name of the team on the logo of the helmet. Uh, I think that um, uh, it, the Buffalo Bills would be another one. You know, what if they just rolled out Browns or just had a big B there? You know, maybe you're in the right direction. I don't, I don't know. But another thing is, you know, look at look at what Atlanta did. You know, at first they were, you know, the normal gray, you know, white and black Falcons, right? Then in, like, 2005, they incorporated a little red in there, just snuck it in there. The Falcon looks a little smoother. And they also have some very nice jerseys going on here, you know. So, you know, sometimes, you know, just incorporating a little bit of color and adding it to it, you know, not just brightening it, but, you know, you're mixing colors together, and now you got a really, you know, um, attractive uh, logo. You know, the Atlanta Falcons logo, it looks nice. So there you I go. happen to like Josh's favorite team, the Minnesota Vikings. I've always liked that logo. It's yeah. because yeah. we're just we're Vikings, man. I mean, I can't argue with you on that one. I mean, nothing sells more of a badass than horns on a, on the side of a helmet. Granted, they don't play like it, 
but it, it's still cool. Uh, but to end, <laughs> like, but to end this, so we can get to your guys's uh, love love your uh, sense of fashion on all of your guys' takes on this. Fact of the matter is, it's a plain brand new logo, but it's plain, which matches a plain team, a plain organization, and a plain history. So again, as I said before, to the Cleveland Browns for real, and to their fans, good luck. John, what do you have for for us this week? Well, mine is more of a sentimental nature because uh, this past weekend, 35 years ago, uh, the reunion was held in Lake Placid for uh, a hockey team, the United States Olympic hockey team, that uh, pulled off uh, what easily can be described as a miracle. And this past weekend, 19 of the 20 players returned to the scene of their greatest triumph to uh, to reminisce about it, to look back on it, and uh, to uh, really... Uh, uh, provide a, a generation that never saw that Olympic Games uh, with an opportunity to experience uh, in words uh, how that uh, all transpired. And uh, uh, for those players, uh, unfortunately, Bob Suter was the only one that couldn't make it because he has passed away, and his uniform was raised to the rafters of Herb Brooks's arena on Friday night. Uh, and then uh, the rest of the, uh, uh, the memories and celebration took place uh, over the weekend. Uh, it was, uh, I think, the birth of USA hockey in this country uh, because to that point in time, uh, the United States in Olympic competition, when it came to hockey, was not very good. They had only won one gold medal. That was in 1960. Uh, but this particular one and the way that they did it, beating the team that frankly was better than them uh, and being able to, on, on one given night, uh, be able to, uh, to play up to their level and with some breaks, was able to, to pull off a, a quite a victory and then finish it off by beating, uh, beating the Finns almost 36 hours later. Uh, it really did uh, spawn what has become a, a rather tre- tremendous growth of, of the sport in this country. It was very much a regionalized sport at the time that those, those Olympic Games took place in Lake Placid. It still is now to some extent, but not nearly the way it was back 35 years ago. And so, uh, for real, I, I think that the sticks need to be raised for those guys because what they did uh, for USA hockey in this country really can't be measured, for real. Well, well, well said, John. Uh, couldn't, couldn't have said it any better than myself. Uh, and thank you for, for reminding me uh, of that because that was a game that I, I never got to see. I only got to see the movie that brought it to life. Uh, Montel, you know, you it's unfortunate to- because I don't think – ABC has ever allowed anyone to gain the rights of that game. And I think that's really a shame because there is at least one generation and maybe even two that have never seen that game. And uh, it's unfortunate because it's one of those sporting events that I think does need to be relived from time to time. Exactly. Uh, Couldn't agree with you more on that one. Uh, Montel, what do you got for us this week, brother? Man, I got a good one for you guys. Uh, the Celtics uh, lost to the uh, Lakers in overtime on Sunday night. Uh, it was a big-time win for the Lakers, but it was also the 14th win on the year. After the game, Coach Byron Scott said that he was infuriated. I'm paraphrasing here. He was infuriated by the fact that his team had boisterously celebrated and gotten all happy. And, uh, you know, all I have to say to that one is, for real, the Lakers are 14 and 41. They've been downright pathetic this whole season, except for one night where they beat my Chicago Bulls. I'll give them that night, but their their season has been riddled with misery. Okay, so they 
apparently decide to uh, celebrate uh, after it took them an overtime uh, contest to beat a 21-33 and Boston Celtics team. Uh, and, and this is great. This is the crowning moment for the Lakers season. This is a proud franchise that has won title after title after title. Um, they are 30th in points allowed, which means they give up the absolute most points allowed in the NBA, found a way to overcome it because, you know, obviously it was with offense and not defense, and they decided to spend time celebrating. Uh, Kobe Bryant was seen shaking his head. So was uh, so was Coach Scott. Uh, it's absolutely disrespectful to the game that the biggest braggarts on that night were the people who had the least to brag about. Um, if the Lakers will get the first overall pick or somewhere in the first five, this franchise will plunge uh, well, basically into irrelevance. They are already now, to, in my opinion, the JV team in that stadium as the Clippers, who aren't even the class of the West anymore, are still a whole lot better, generate uh, seemingly more uh, sales revenue, and also have the best postseason prospects. And uh, it's surprising that, uh, you know, this has happened so soon. So, you know, the Lakers, I mean, you know, get, get it together, guys. You know, I know it's the little things sometimes, but learn how to win. You know, I know you don't do it very much, Congress Boozer. I know you don't do it very much, Nick Young or Swaggy P, as they call you. But in all seriousness, uh, Coach Scott's got to teach his team some class because they won't be doing a whole lot more winning, uh, I think, this season or for March of next. And so they gotta they got to learn how to handle it when they do. They blew a nine-point lead late in that game, the Lakers. Allowed Avery Bradley to shoot a three with, Almost no time left on the clock to send that game to overtime and then found a way to pull it off in overtime with a Celtic team that, as you mentioned, was kind of depleted based on trades that had been made and and the fact that Jaron Seliger is gone for the year. Um, It's unfortunate to see two franchises that uh, have been the patriarchs of the NBA for a long time struggle the way they have been, but eventually they'll get back to where they've been before. Yeah, it's going to take some time, and I think some of these things will reach some new lows. I think the Celtics might be further down the road here. Uh, obviously, the Lakers have to, you know, figure out what to do with Kobe, and they have to wait, you know, for Kobe's approval before they bring some of these guys in, you know. Uh, he he really plays a role in some of their offseason moves. But in all seriousness, I think both are just, just long down the road. Uh, I just give the edge to the Celtics because, you know, they play in the East. Yeah, for, for real. So, and that about wraps up our first hour of the show. You are listening to the NGSC Sports Weekly show here with Josh Zimmer, John Doucette, and Montel Hardy. You can go over to NGSCSports.com and check out all of our new content, A Rose in Chicago's Country. And we're obviously talking about Derrick Rose and the mishaps of the Chicago Bulls this season. Twan's Daily Previews the Arizona Diamondbacks. Of course, you can go out there and read my two notes that I've posted from this past weekend of me being at the Combine, NFL Combine Day 4, DBs, winners, and losers, and, of course, NFL Combine Day 3, linebackers and defensive line, five takeaways. We also have our second installment of the Draft Journey series on former Montana State linebacker Alex Singleton as our own. Uh, Jamie Council was able to spend a day with him at his workout facility training for his pro day that will be on March 16th in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, Feel free to check that out. And then, of course, you can go to NGSE Live Channel 1 right at the bottom of the ticker, and you'll be able to listen to us live on the show. 
Coming up in the second hour, of course, we're going to be talking combine experience. We're going to be talking some NHL hockey. And then, of course, we're going to be joined by new NGSC sports writer Dan Meehan. So don't turn away, and we'll be back right after the short break. And, of course, welcome back to the second hour of the NGSC Sports Weekly Radio Show. I'm your host, Joshua Zimmer, joined by Montel Hardy and John Doucette. As we wait for new sports writer of NGSC Sports, Dan Meehan, to join us, might as well get into that combine talk because it was sure, uh, certainly exciting. Uh, Montel, what did you take away from the combine? Well, you know, I, th- I thought about a few things that had happened, and, you know, I, I always say it, and I said it uh, the other day to a friend, you know, uh, a lot of people, uh, writers, uh, analysts, broadcasters, you know, they all decide to uh, discuss the combine and where people are going to fall, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of talking going on, but uh, the combine is kind of a day to sit and listen. Uh, you obviously can take a look at some of these guys' numbers and how they test and discuss that, but 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 the, the but those days are essentially about letting those prospects show you and, and tell you what they are and what they're going to be essentially from an athletic standpoint. Of course, uh, you know, there's still uh, hours of tape you need to look at. But uh, that day, those days are, are about you know what the prospects are going to be, what they're what they're where they're at now, and 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 what they can become. You know, so uh, when I think about that and and the way some of these guys uh, played. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the nitty-gritty here with uh, maybe a little bit with Dan and then after Dan's call in a second. But uh, to me, some things that, that jumped out to me was, A, uh, this running back class. Um, still some talented running backs here, but not too many of them tested particularly well. Uh, I, I, test, I, te- er, I tweeted out just before the, the tailback portion of the combine began that uh, if, uh, if for some reason some of these guys disappoint, this class, with the exception of the top two, you know, Melvin Gordon and Todd Gurley, this class will essentially test itself out of the second round and, and collectively slide itself into the third. So I feel like in the second you see, you know, a few backs go, um, but now it's going to be the third round and maybe for some guys in the fourth where you're going to see most of these tailbacks come off the board, uh, which is, of course, good news if you're a team who has other needs and would like to go back and get a running back, but – of course, bad news for them because they, they all cost themselves some money that day. <laughs> um, Todd Gurley, I wish he had it tested. Um, if he had been able to give it a go, he wouldn't have to be very good to be considered the top running back in this class. Evan Gordon ran in the four fives. I mean, and that's that's checking a box because he um, was probably the second, third fastest guy and probably the most, uh, when you look at the body of work, uh, tested the, one of the, in terms of speed, uh, tested the best um, out of his, you know, group in terms of who's accomplished as much as he has. So 
uh, you know, there's tricky things about these tailbacks in the combine. Uh, we saw the depth of the pass rusher. Uh, as a Bears fan, you know, not too much good happened for you that day because people realized, uh, you know, what Danny Shelton looks like during drills. People saw all these edge rushers and what they looked like during their drills, during their testing. So um, everyone slid up a bit. So uh, those those fifth-round, sixth-round guys, you know, they, they might find a way in the day too because there's about to be some serious uh, – uh, serious uh, reaching, possibly, and just a, a general run on some of these key positions in the early part of the draft. Yeah. I always tell you, you bring up the running back position for a team like the Patriots, who may have a couple of free agents in Shane Vereen and and Stephen Ridley that they may have to make decisions on. I think the fact that this running back class didn't necessarily stand out the way it could have or maybe should have could be good news for the Patriots in terms of being able to draft a pretty good running back in the third or fourth round and not have to pay him a whole lot of money. Yeah, and that's what they do. I mean, I, you know, I make fun of them all the time as to how they treat their players. Uh, Steven, um, well, Steven, Shane Vereen was, to me, instrumental in their, in their title run, and he, they were able to do so many different things with him. But I'm sure you'll see in, you know, a, a very short matter of time that, you know, Bill Belichick can cut you off in a hurry. He can replace your talent just like that. So if one of them steps out of line and asks for a little too much money, it really won't be too long before you see him uh, part ways with him and just draft a new guy to come in and do essentially the same thing. I think Ridley especially might be gone uh, only because of the emergence of possibly Garrett, uh, Garrett Blunt and, and, and you know, uh, Gray, if he decides to stay. But uh, I really like uh, I really like what they have with Ridley, and I hope they keep him. Really, I do. They have another interesting decision to make with their kicker, Steven Goskowski, who also is a free agent and may command some pretty good money based on coming off the Super Bowl and, and the, the kind of years that he's had as their kicker. It's possible that the Patriots may also be looking for a kicker as well, probably uh, through the draft, through the late rounds of the process, or even through the free agency market, see if they can't find a cheaper version so that they can take some of that money that they would have spent toward him and use it in other areas, which is what they did with Adam Vinatieri was here. Agreed. And, 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 and when they decided to you know, uh, go ahead and, and tweet them and, and do that type of thing, when they tweeted him in and, and did that, that was – Wow, you know what I'm saying? Because he won them the Super Bowl, won them several. So uh, that 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 shows you where the loyalty is. And, and no disrespect to Belichick, you know he's a wise man, money wise. He knows what production he can get, but you know it is what it is. Um, but it it sounds like we have Dan on the line. Dan, hey myself. Hey buddy. So uh, you know John and Josh, I'd like to introduce you to. Man, I think he calls himself the ugly truth, the naked truth, something like that. Anyway, I'm I'm the uh, ugly truth. I'm a very there we, there we angry, angry, I'm a very angry, angry man. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, on behalf of the NGSE uh, sports family, I'd like to welcome Mr. Dan, me and Dan. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right, guys. How about yourself? All right. Good. Good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having yeah, me. Well, see, uh, I'm chilling, and so, and so is uh, John, and you know, of course, Josh is over there sipping tea. Um, so, so we're trying to we're trying to get to know the real Dan Me in here. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, uh, as, as you get as you alluded to, Montel, I am now part of the NGSC family. I'm the baseball featured writer, but I also do a lot of football work. But because it seems like you, we're staffed over here for football, um, I run my own Bears blog called Grizzly Gridiron Ice. Fancy myself something of a draft expert. I don't know if I know a damn thing. I probably do not, but that's just all in the eye of the holder, I suppose. Other than that, avid sports fan, try to learn everything I can, 
and I'm a graduate of SIU. So that's about all you need to know. <laughs> uh, also a bit of a quarterback's coach there, right? Yeah, I do uh, I do coach quarterbacks on the side. Um, so that's the position I know most about reading into, like in terms of uh, like what is it, what is their footwork like? What's their arm slot? Is it consistent? Is it fluid? Is it herky jerky like Tim Tebow, where he brings the ball around and throws it across his body? It's it's not fun, but you know I enjoy watching it. Of course, and and Dan doesn't give himself enough credit here, guys. You know I've seen a couple of scouting reports by him. He knows what he's doing. He's very good. Um, you know, in terms of football, he's a little in love with Todd Bowles for my liking, but uh, other than that, I don't think there's too many knocks on Dan. Uh, I, because I like Todd Bowles. We're really going back to this. Really? <laughs> you know, that, that, that's where it all began, Dan. That's where it all began. But, uh, you know, as we, as we move forward, um, first off, uh, you know, right now we're talking a little bit of combine stuff. Uh Feel comfortable chatting with us a little bit about some of these uh, key things. I'm sure Josh is going to take us through, I guess, a little bit of combine talk. Is that all right? Oh yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll be we'll be flying through it. So all right. Uh, all right, delicious. Josh. <laughs> Let it rip, Josh. Hey, yes, sir. Well, uh, you know, we'll get into my notes a little later uh, and my takeaways from it. But uh, you know, Dan, with you. Uh, you know, I had a chance to, to kind of watch a little bit of everything, uh, you know, from the from the field perspective. Uh, but what did you take away from the quarterbacks uh, that were out there working out on Saturday? Um, it's Jameis and everybody else is what I took away from it. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to knock Mariota, but I've said it before on the What's Good radio station. Um, Mariota's best asset is speed. And yep. now – that's the last thing I care about as a quarterback. I could care less that Jameis ran barely sub five. You know why? Because he can put his back foot into the ground and he can drive the football wherever it needs to go. Mariota, I'm still not convinced, can do that. Like, the one thing I will say about Jameis, despite him completing all 16 of his passes to 16 different wide receivers, impressive in itself because he has no idea what these guys' route combinations are like, what kind of speed they all have, and he was hitting them in stride. His big issue was, Every throw had the same velocity. He couldn't take things on and off of it. It's like he only knows how to throw hard. Do, do you think he was trying to be that guy, Dan? Because I don't know, man. You know, sometimes when you got a Ferrari, you want to drive it, right? Like, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I get that, but at the same time, there is such a thing as touch. Mm-hmm. I mean, Aaron Rodgers does not have the greatest of arms, but I mean, he can put some zip on it. But we also know we've seen him put it where no one else can get it with, with just a lot of lollipop on it. I mean, it's okay. You don't need to life live in everywhere. That's when you become, you know, Jay Cutler, and you fall for the golden arm. No, which God. Brings, which you brings did not me. just say Jay Cutler on this podcast, man. I you did. Know. He did. And, I, and, I thought and, I dropped that. I did, and I, apo- I apologize for it. I do apologize. <laughs> my one rule I will say that I've fallen into my own trap of this year in terms of the quarterbacks, my one rule is you never fall for the million-dollar smile, the big arm, and the guy who looks the, looks the part. And I've fallen into that trap with one quarterback this year. The more I watch Bryce Petty, the more I like him. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to like him because he breaks every single rule of what I just said. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will, on the outside, you know, he's not the speediest of guys. You know, didn't test very well in the run portion did try to make him live a little bit more from the pocket than, you know, some of these right. guys. Well, I mean, right? he's – for a guy who was a spread option quarterback, he 
he really did just throw the ball. He didn't take off very often. I mean, he he at least has consistent mechanics. His footwork's a bit choppy at times, but that's probably also a product of the fact that he's just bigger and stronger than everybody and he can kind of fight off guys. I mean, I'm still watching film on him, so what I'm saying isn't, I'm sure isn't 100% correct from what I've seen. But it, it is what it is. Um, another guy I like in terms of just the quarterbacks because he's the guy that is the typical get the most out of every ability you have is uh, Shane Carden from ECU. Um, yeah. I didn't catch a ton of him at the combine, but from what I've seen, I mean, he he uh, he doesn't have a great arm, but he's good at spotting the ball and anticipation, which for someone who lacks arm strength, you have to do. He's got good footwork, good mechanics, and he, you can tell he just loves playing the game of football, which is a huge thing to me. It's not like some of the stuff where, with, for instance, the best quarterback in this class, I'm not sure if Jameis truly loves the game of football or if he's just a really good athlete. I don't know which it is. At least not yet. <laughs> yeah, true. And, and another thing is that, you know, when you look at, you know, some of these guys and the way they play, I think it's very interesting from an IQ point, um, you know, who gets into the own. And, and then it's also about – um, you know, the fight that the quarterback has. Um, since mm-hmm. he decided to bring in, um, you know, since he decided to say Jay Cutler, now I have to say Jay Cutler, so now we both said Jay Cutler. But anyways, uh, one of the key <laughs> elements in, in judging a quarterback, right, is, uh, you know, their competitiveness. And when I see Shane Carden, I see a lot of fight in him. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a guy who, you know, he's going to be there. Um, I've seen him play through a lot of things. He's played through, you know, he's taking some big hits. Uh, what he's done on tape, it isn't always pretty, but sometimes no. it works. And, and he's had some days where it's been kind of nice looking. He's had some days it's been kind of not. But no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, you see some fight in him. And, I, and I'm with you. He's getting some points in me. I'm going to see some more tape on him, see how I really feel about him. But I, I can see that. Sure. Well, I mean, unfortunately for this quarterback class, like I said, it's Jameis and everybody else. And unfortunately for the NFL, the quarterback position in general for the NFL outside of really seven or eight guys, sucks. That's just the long and the short of it. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I wish it was another, a nicer way to sugarcoat it, but there's not. It's those seven or eight guys and then everyone else is kind of like, oh, you could draft a quarterback if you like one. Go ahead. And therein lies the problem with this draft class. It kind of sucks for quarterbacks. I mean... Yes, yeah. This is, is one of the is worst it, quarterback classes in a long time. I mean, is, yes, is yes, that as the one where EJ Manuel was your only first-round pick? Well, it's worse because, I mean, <laughs> Mike Glennon could be traded for a third-round pick. So, oh, God, don't Mike say Glennon. that. You, you'll make my dog throw up. Don't say that. <laughs> so, I mean, think about <laughs> where you have to be, where, where people are spending a real pick on Mike Glennon. He himself was not a third-round pick. Just throwing that out there. But anyways, uh, you know, as we progress, um, Josh, you, you know, you got another question. I know we're probably going to get Dan on here in the next five or so minutes, but well, let's, uh, let's test him a little bit. What, what else you got for Dan, Josh? Well, I, I know you like quarterbacks, so obviously I'm going to keep it in that in that path. Oh, well, I can do that in linebackers, and, and uh, I can also do uh, running backs a little bit too. Well, that's perfect. I was down there for the linebacker, so I'll ask you what you took. Uh, what did you take away from uh, Eric Kendricks? Eric Kendricks is essentially what I thought he was going to be. He's almost like a clone of his brother. Very not not quicker than he is really straight line speed from what I saw. I mean, he's fast, he's, but I think he's more quick twitch, get to the football. I can diagnose the play. That's what I take away from him. Um, 
he was a little more fluid in his hips than I thought he was going to be. He, I mean, did he struggle at times? Yeah. But I think that's all because when you're getting used to all these different linebackers coaches and they're telling you to keep your eyes on them, and a lot of these guys, they want to anticipate, which is the last thing you want to do. I mean, you saw it with Rameek Wilson from, from Georgia where he kept trying to guess instead of just following the football. I mean, it just happens. But, no, I like Eric Kendricks. Um, I don't like him as a first-round pick, nor do I like really any of the linebackers that are true Mike's in this draft for a first-round pick. I mean, the guy who I thought was going to blow the combine up was Bernardrick McKinney, and he didn't. I thought at the very least he was going to run in the 4-5, which would have been like, oh, man, a man that size is moving that fast. Okay, let's go. Well, he didn't do that either. I mean, his, we all knew his hips were awful. He's got terrible, terrible hips. But I didn't think the straight line speed was going to be so pedestrian for a guy who was touted as a great athlete, not a great football player. Yeah, and, and to your credit, Dan, uh, historically, those are the guys that come in and show out at the combine, right? I mean, it's people who, I mean, some of the times production is usually an issue among them, but, you know, it's a guy who was fairly productive throughout the year, had some issues. You know, I think we both already discussed this tape and how I feel about it, but the combine mm-hmm. is made for guys like that to show up and, and play great. And I yeah. remember saying it several times. I felt like he'd shock us all and, and, and earn himself a first-round pick. I'll tell you uh, the line. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. I'm done. No, uh, the, the linebacker that caught my eye was uh, Williams. I think his name was from uh, Minnesota. He caught my Man. eye a little bit. Minnesota. I oh. think that's – I, I want to say that's his name. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm not at my computer at the moment. But uh, okay. he he looked like a Big Ten linebacker, better athlete than he – or better football player than he is athlete. So, I mean, he looked all right in, the fl- in like, the hip cover and the hip flipping drills. But you can tell he's just a football player. It's the same thing with – I liken it to almost the Paul Dawson performance where everyone was like, oh, my God, he was running almost a five. Oh, no. Don't yeah. do that, Paul. And then Paul took to Twitter and got mad at everybody. Like, oh, I'm not a track athlete. I'm a football player. Well, that's wonderful, Paul. You still got to, you know, prove that's you can – okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And, and, and that's very true. I mean, man, I – I thought Paul Dawson would come in there and show up. I mean, his tape would suggest a force. Yeah, oh, yeah. Paul Dawson's tape is ridiculous. But yeah. um, the other linebacker that I caught my eye was another Big Ten guy. I can't Again, I can't think of his name, but the Penn State Maybe linebacker. Oh, okay. okay. I was about to say Jake Ryan. Um, no, Jake Ryan, yeah. I, I kind of knew what he was. He's a tryhard. I mean, he tries mm-hmm. really, really hard. He works his ass off. And that's mm-hmm. great for him. It'll make him probably what's – a rotational inside backer in a in a special team standout in his in his career, which by no means mm-hmm. that's a good that's a good living. I mean, mm-hmm. but I, I wish I could remember the Big Ten. He won Big Ten linebacker of the year this year. Oh, geez. but it's oh wow. It, it's, now, now I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> and but uh, yeah, he would look exactly like how you would expect a Big Ten linebacker to look, or the Penn yeah. State linebacker at least. I mean, kind of short, sawed off guy. You know, slightly above average athlete, but you saw him in like the find the football drills where his hips were sunk, he was flipping everything. He just oh, looked Mike like he's Yeah, that's it. And that might go. be it. But just he's exactly what you expect from Penn State when they get the moniker linebacker. You, I mean, is he going to be a high pick? Probably not. But you might get yourself a productive player similar to Chris Borland. Not not in the same mold, obviously, because Borland was just 
you know, an afterthought because he was 5'11 and not 6'2". Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, in, that, yeah. in that same kind of vein, I guess, where you're going to overlook him because, you know, Penn State wasn't great last year, but he won Big Ten linebacker of the year, and he, he, you can tell that he's been a coached-up linebacker. His ceiling probably isn't super high, but I think he could have a decent career ahead of him. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I can agree to that notion. I think he's going to be very good down the stretch. And, you know, I, I, I'm very confused, and I think as people who watch the Bears, we can agree, right? I mean, maybe this isn't such a bad year to switch to 3-4, uh, given the emergence of edge guys and the downside of some of these uh, will and, well, and middle linebackers especially. Well, the, the edge guy that I wanted to show out showed out. So I'm, I, I won my battle, Montel. Oh, I won Josh, my oh, you know what? You and Josh are, are probably best friends now. Josh, he also knows Vic Beasley. Vic Beasley was my guy. Yeah. Vic Beasley was my guy. Along with along with my other guy who was sick at the combine allegedly. Randy Gregory was my other guy. And mm-hmm. that that didn't go too well for me. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think whoever gets him is, is drafting solely based on potential and it's really well, sad that his athletic performance wasn't the same thing. Well, like I said, he showed up too light and he ran too slow at that weight. Had he ran faster, mm-hmm. I would have been okay with it because I would have known at least he was trying to do it for the track, but he just didn't. <laughs> That's right, and, and, and I, I agree with you. And you know what, uh, Dan? You know, it's thanks so much for coming on the show. By the way, you know this is you know NBC Weekly program, so you know you can brag to your friends at work about it tomorrow and tell them you were able to come on the show. Oh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, that's exactly what I want to do at my non-existent water cooler. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> uh, Josh, John, you guys got anything for Dan? I, I know it's about 922 or, well, 1022 Eastern. You guys got anything for him real quick? Well, the only thing I was going to ask Dan was, you know, Montel and I were talking about the running backs and how maybe after Gurley and Gordon that uh, the rest of that group didn't uh, take advantage of an opportunity that presented itself. Did you see it the same way? Um, yes and no. The, what, I'll preface it by saying the NFL running back is the most fungible position in the league. It doesn't. You can find a guy anywhere who may not have looked the part in college, but all of a sudden he gets to the league and the right line in front of him, and he's a good running back. I mean, I love, love, love Todd Gurley. I think he. I thought until he blew his knee out, he was a top ten pick. I mean, but that we'll see. I mean, it was a red flag to me that he didn't want to at least have a medical exam from the team doctors that out in Indy. Like, is there something wrong with your surgery? I mean, it's four months now. <laughs> Yeah, it should, yeah. It should be medically cleared to check out. I mean, at least see that there's been progress on it. But, I mean, that's it. Um, Melvin Gordon excited me a lot more until I started really watching him. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I don't see the Jamal Charles that everyone else sees. No, not, I don't think he's as electric. It's an unfair comp. I agree completely. He's just no. not as explosive. doesn't have the, the juice that he does. I don't know who guy, to compare him to. The the guy I was hoping would show out was the was is my personal favorite running back in the draft. I'm a huge fan of David Cobb. I'm a huge fan. Absolutely. Um, I I love his running style. I like that he's tough, hard nosed. Just give me the ball. I'm going forward. Let's go. Um, and it, un- and as versatile as you want a guy to be, right? Yeah, but unfortunately, he looked like he pulled or strained his quad on his first forty attempts, and that was the end of him. Like, oh, yes. that's that's rough. Tough break for a guy who is probably fighting to be a mid-round pick as it is with how the running back position goes in the league. Um, other running backs, I guess, to like. I mean, Jay Ajayi from Boise State. I mean, he's he's all right. Um, 
his running style and his size, I don't know how conducive it is to a long career because he does have mm-hmm. guys just bounce off off him. But he's not built like David Cobb. Or, I mean, as gay as it's going to sound, David Cobb's thighs were just destro- were destroying those poor, poor spandex pants. He's huge. <laughs> but, you know, J.E. really wasn't. I mean, he kind of just built like a scat back who runs hard. Otherwise, yeah, and I kind of got like a Ryan Matthewsy type, Fred Taylor kind of guy. You know, I was yeah, hoping he'd be in that yeah. category. The, the the guy, the other guy I like is the dude from Indiana. Um, oh boy, <laughs> Kevin Coleman. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Coleman, yeah, from Oak Park, from, Illinois. Of yeah, from, yeah, from from Oak Forest. Um, mm-hmm. I like him. He's the most impatient damn running back, though. He outruns everybody. He, he had no line. He had no line in Indiana. He, I, I know, but he he showed little patience even when the blocking was there. He just went, and that's not a knock against him. If you can do it, you can do it. But in the mm-hmm. NFL, it's going to get you killed. Of course, um, Amir Abdullah does not a damn thing for me. Um, no, well, eh, eh. I I need to watch more tape on him. But I, I'll tell hey. you this: some every now and then you run across a. Uh, Guy that's a workhorse guy with a scat back body, and I think if there's mm-hmm. anyone that fits that mold, it may be him. I think yeah. he can be like a Thomas Jonesy type of guy. He'll yeah. be a little bit of a home run hitter occasionally for a few years for a good team. Yeah, the um, difference is Thomas Jones was built like a Mack truck. I mean, <laughs> yeah, have you seen Amir Abdullah? I mean, if he puts on any more muscle, you know, he's going to explode. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's got, um, he's got muscles the last coming out one, of his I'll, I'll leave you mm-hmm. with a sleeper. One sleeper, and then I'll get, let you guys go. Um, mm-hmm. The running back from Florida, Kevin Matt Jones. Jones. Matt Jones. Yeah, Matt Jones. Mm-hmm. Like him a lot. His, yep. I mean, I don't know how good he is, but his tape just pops to me because he, he doesn't give a damn about people in front of him. And that's my, yep. that's my kind of running back. I don't care if you can juke someone out of their shoes because that means you're going to rely too much on it. And the juke yep. almost doesn't work all the time. Running through somebody, mm-hmm. that never goes out of file until your body just gives out. Mm-hmm. So, Matt Jones will be a sleeper if you're looking for a sixth or seventh round pick. Yeah. And, Dan, since you, since you like a running back like that, I'll give you one to, uh, to go ahead and throw some tape on about uh, Zach Zinner from South Dakota State. Uh, you like physical running backs who don't care who's in front of them. Uh, this dude can do it. And I, I'll mention he, he did run for 2,000 yards back-to-back and then had 1,800 yards this past year. Oh wow! Uh-huh. I'll definitely throw I, Jack Benner. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen some stuff on him. I haven't really gone out of my way to look at him because I was trying to get through the bigger name running backs. Because the one that I kept hearing about was J.A.J.E. and I just turned on the tape and I wasn't wowed. I was just kind of nope. like, all right, he's a guy who gets mm-hmm. the ball a lot for a very mm-hmm. above average Boise State team. Yeah, <laughs> and he runs with power. He's versatile. The guy can catch the ball in the backfield, and it seemed like. Well, at least until he tested, it seemed like he had a good enough getaway speed to make some plays at the next level. Uh, I don't, I don't know if he's uh, very explosive, but like I said, I see him in that Fred Taylor, Ryan Matthews mold. You know, won't set the world on fire, but if he can stay healthy, he'll be very productive. You know, and why not? Well, why not, JJ in this class? That's all I'll say. Uh, Josh, you got anything else for Dan? Yeah, I do not, man. Uh, again, thank you, thank you for coming on and spending well, thanks for having me, guys. Of course, Dan, and of course, you know, as we get closer to draft time, we'll bring you back. Uh, we'll have obvious projects we're working on, dude. So, mm-hmm. of course, keep in touch, and I look forward to your uh, next baseball article, hopefully, I guess this week or, or whenever. You, yeah, it'll be up probably tomorrow night sometime. It's going to be, uh, I think, 
trying to remember what it was supposed to be. Um, I know last week I was supposed to do the A-Rod thing, and that just didn't tickle my fancy at all. Um, okay. <laughs> but this well, week I'm... Yeah, go ahead. And then probably this week I'll throw... I'll probably do the one that was assigned to me when I, whenever I check my email again. And I'm also probably going to do, because I'm I'm, a, I'm from Chicago, I'll probably do a Cubs uh, preview here too. Yeah, that goes. Okay. Okay. And then yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, good, I'll also have my uh, a couple scouting reports up on Grizzly Gridiron here coming up soon, too. Cool, cool. And as always, I will, you know, uh, be sure to tweet that to me. I'll go ahead and retweet it. Uh, maybe some of the okay. guys will, too. Uh, go ahead and drop your uh, uh, Twitter handle for us. Can you do that and let everyone know where to find yeah, you? Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Grizzly Gridiron, uh, G-R-I-Z-Z-L-Y, Gridiron. I'm easy to find. And just don't yell at me about my scouting reports. I get a lot of that. <laughs> Like, yeah, oh, you sorry, don't know what you're talking about, Dan. You're an idiot. Like, oh, yeah. Thanks. Well, you know, <laughs> of course. Uh, thank you, you so much, Dan, for that. joining us, man. Yeah, oh, thanks yeah. a lot, guys. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much, Dan, for joining us. And like I said, we'll have you on probably definitely again in the future. Uh, and once again, that was uh, Dan Meehan of uh, right, Grizzly Gridiron. For sure. Thanks, man. Uh, Dan Meehan of Grizzly Gridiron and, of course, uh, new family uh, to NGSESports.com. Uh, so, Check out his uh, articles. He does uh, baseball writing for us. We'll do some football writing for us uh, down the stretch here. And uh, just going to kick it back to you, Josh. Uh, isn't it fun when we have guests on the show? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And he's a good one. Uh, he was exciting. Uh, he brought uh, some good taste to the show. And now it's time to continue with the uh, the NFL draft talk. Um you know, uh, I'll give you guys some of my notes and my takeaways from this weekend. Uh, you know, we, we touched up on the uh, – so, uh, What I want to know, first of all, is how was the hotel? Uh, you know, a good room, bad room? Did you, you know hotel, – hotel was, hotel was pretty nice. Uh, I got, you know, obviously when you get a hotel room by yourself, two beds to one guy, uh, that's, that's good uh, – that's good calling. Um, no, it was the Holiday Inn Express, so it was, it was, a, it was a decent hotel. Um, you always got to enjoy those types of things. Um, but, uh, you know, we, the breakfast was good inside the hotel and and everything, uh, uh, the meals uh, that you may have gotten inside the Lucas oil stadium was okay as well. I can't even, uh, I don't even want to step on the scale because the food was uh, at the stadium. The food was, was too good. Um, to be honest, uh, I, I know I gained some weight while I was in the media room, uh, this weekend. Because, uh, like I said, there you were stuffing stuff stuff in your pockets. Now, were you? I did. I did. I did stuff in my oh, pockets. Oh, now that's that's just snacks, not good. Take them back to the hotel. You know, I mean, you you got to do a college poor college kid. Of course, I'm going to stuff my pockets and take it back to the hotel room. <laughs> oh my! But, uh, I made sure to do it at the very end. Um, there's, there's no problems there. That way, I made sure everybody else had a chance to eat. Um, but. Uh, but, no, I mean, we touched up on the quarterbacks. You know, the receivers, there's really not a whole lot to talk about there. I mean, the guys who wowed, uh, wowed which would be the, the big three. And then, of course, the biggest wow was Jalen Strong. I uh, didn't expect him to run a 4-4. Um, and then really didn't expect his routes to be as clean as they were. Um, but he, he looked like a guy who, uh, Montel, uh, he made us look pretty smart for mocking him in the first round, that's for sure. Um, who was he? Looked, he uh, Jalen Strong, uh, Arizona State. Oh. Oh, of course. And and, and Jalen, like I said before, guy, he's a guy that's about route running. And I'm really curious to see where he lands, but it's going to be important that wherever he goes, it's going to be about 
uh, developing his route running, and in the meanwhile, use him vertically uh, in creative in creative ways. Have him run these quick, twitchy routes, nothing too expansive. Uh, you know, do these things to get him open and work with him now, get efficiency from him now. And I think a team like the Chiefs, I mean, they just need someone like him just to go over the top and, and just make the plays down there. You know, they don't need this crafty guy that does this and that. Just tell him to go straight. Tell him to go on a comeback. You know, throw a little back shoulder fade. That's his game, uh, at least for now, because uh, he's got to do a better job. You know, we talked about his routes, Josh. You know, he's got to be able to sink his hips a little better. But uh, his body, is, you know, just physically, everything you really want. I mean, I haven't gone over his test scores yet from the combine, but what little I have seen, above average, at the least. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, we have still pro day. I believe his pro day is mid-March. I believe it's March 17th is Arizona State. So, I mean, he does have some a decent amount of time uh, to continue to improve on those routes and kind of prepare himself for that. Uh, some of the running backs, you know, we'll, we'll just dabble into a little bit of the running backs. Um, you know, we talked about some of them. Uh, you know, we discussed Melvin Gordon, you know, virtually guys who were in the top five. Uh, a couple of my guys, some small school guys, really stood out. Of course, Zach Zinner, um, you know, first and foremost, again, uh, with a lot of these FCS guys, I knew they, uh, in terms of the skill positions, I knew they weren't going to wow me. Uh, you know, I, I knew Zach Zinner wasn't going to come in there and give me a 4 4 40, um, especially at the style that he runs. He's not that type of running back. But uh, I will say, you know, it, it, he correlates kind of like Melvin Gordon. His football speed is a lot faster than his straight line speed, uh, and it shows on his tape. But he had a solid 40, a 4 6 1. Um, a guy who I was a little disappointed in was John Crockett. Um, this is a guy who's a little bit more decisive running back. I expected him to be in the 4-5 range. Uh, you know, 4-6-4 is a little slow for me. But, of course, you know, in my opinion, the, the number one FCS prospect after a small school guy was is David Johnson, and it still is from this weekend. Uh, even though Alan Hobart, uh, the offensive lineman from uh, – or the offensive lineman, uh, Marpet, the offensive lineman from Hobart, excuse me, is, is pushing him for that spot. Had a 4-5-40, looked awesome in the drills. Uh, he was able to, you know, being a taller running back, he was able to sink his hips a little bit in the change of their direction drills, which is what you want to see from a running back. Uh, so those are the three guys in terms of the running backs, uh, sleeper-wise, that stuck out for me. Uh, the defensive ends and the linebackers, uh, you know, again, uh, we touched on them a little bit, but they all surprised. Dante Fowler and Vic Beasley. Uh, the only thing I can say is wow, uh, with a couple exclamation points at the end, uh, especially with Vic Beasley. I didn't expect him to be as heavy as he was, uh, you know, 246, uh, 34 reps, and he was a top five guy in all of the testing. I mean, he ran a, you know, 45340, uh, had a 41-inch vertical, 1010 uh, broad jump, and 34 reps on the bench press. Um, and, again, he was another guy that looked good in all of the drills, uh, quick feet, uh, showed great change of direction and great burst when he plants his feet and drives. Uh, in the conversion drill, he showed that he was able to open his hips uh, and, and run in a, in a drop and, again, flip his hips to sit into the zone, uh, which is something that I wanted to see because, you know, at Clemson, he doesn't really get a chance to do that. And then, um, you know, defensive lineman, Leonard Williams, uh, you know, Montel, I talked to you about this on my way home uh, when I landed on Sunday or uh, Monday, but he's a guy who, uh, I mean, I, I I can't say anything else about him. Uh, I'm done. I give up. Uh, this dude's a top five pick. Um, and what sold me was not so much that he, the way he ran, but how he looked in his position drills. And I, I told you this on the phone. He looked like he was a linebacker doing his position drills. 
at 300 pounds, uh, 6'5", 300, and he looked as smooth as some of the linebackers. I even thought he looked a little bit better than uh, Shaq Thompson doing some of the drills um, in terms of changing direction, changing his feet, uh, planting and sticking and driving. Uh, he's awesome. Uh, Danny Shelton was everything I expected. Uh, fat guy, so I knew it was going to be a slow 40, but his position drills and his, his short area burst, which is really what I worry about, uh, was phenomenal. Uh, again, a guy who's a top 10 pick. couple small school guys. Davis Toll from Chattanooga is going to be jumping on people's uh, radars. You know, I want you guys to know that first. This dude had an awesome weekend. Uh, he tested well, uh, had high reps on the 225. He was around the 25, uh, 26 range, uh, had a 4740. Uh, looked good in his position drills. So he, he's a guy that helped himself a lot. Uh, Kyle Emanuel, the defensive end from North Dakota State, was another guy. Love who was this guy. Impressive. Love this guy. Uh, uh, he ran really well, and I think he'll, you know, and you know, we talked about him, but I think he can be like a like a Sam and like one of those four three defenses. Yeah, you know, he's a. I think he's more of that of that guy. I really don't think he's a defensive end. Um, he he looks like he's a little bit more more athletic for his size. Um, a guy who, even though he didn't weigh the weight of a defensive end, who is going to stay at defensive end, I would assume, is going to be Zach Wagaman out of Montana. Uh, didn't have very many uh, reps on the bench press, which is a little bit of a concern. Uh, did have a chance to speak with him. He is still kind of recovering from a, a nagging shoulder injury. Um, but to be honest, I don't – the thing with the, with the testing is I don't try to put a lot of weight – and I talked to you about this a little bit too, John, is I don't put a lot of weight into it. Um, because some of these guys are going to be workout warriors. An example is Byron Jones, because uh, what he showed is not what he showed on tape at all. Um, but some of these guys are just true gamers. And what I got out of Wagaman's workout is everything that translated from his film when you watch his film. Uh, and I believe that he plays with a little bit more power uh, than what was displayed with the, the 14 reps at 225. Well, but, I, look, I think that that's the part of this that I, I really think that uh, – you know, for NFL personnel is, is really the, the hard part of the whole thing is that you're going to have your workout warriors and then you're going to have your guys that uh, maybe haven't necessarily been as dedicated to that as, as maybe they should be. Uh, it's, it's, it's weaving your way through uh, uh, the, the nooks and crannies of it all that really does become uh, the job for the NFL personnel people when they start to putting their draft boards together and trying to figure out where everybody could potentially fall as the process begins. And, and that's the hardest part, um, you know, and, and what, I, what I've what i been trying to do in terms of creating my board now uh, in Montel, uh, you know, we talk about this too, in no way, shape, or form are we, you know, working for an NFL office, but you kind of have to have that thought process with it. And with mine, uh, I know there's going to be guys who are going to test well. Uh, I knew. I mean, I said it last week. I knew Vic Beasley was going to blow, the, you know, blows, blow it up. Uh, that was – that was a given. You can just see it on his tape that he's athletic as get out, and I knew he was going to blow it up. Uh, did I know he was going to weigh what he weighed? No. I had no clue. I expected him to be around 225 because that's around where he's been. But, you know, I you, you have to put a lot of weight into their tape, um, in my opinion, because that's the biggest thing. Uh, if You know, you have a guy, you know, look like Tarzan, play like Jane. Uh, this is kind of how it uh, – that, you know, monitor <laughs> – Dude, uh, you have a bunch of these guys. An example, uh, Byron Jones looked like Tarzan in terms of his workout. I mean, 
potentially set a world record in the broad jump, I believe 12-3. Um, but you don't see it on his tape, so he plays like Jane. Uh, Zach Wagaman, yeah, he looked like Tarzan. Uh, I expected him to do what he did. And his tape, he plays like Tarzan. Uh, extremely effective, extremely productive. I mean, 74, this year alone, 74 tackles, 22 of them for a loss, 17 and a half sacks, uh, was third in the country uh, in all divisions in sacks uh, behind Alohi Kahaha and uh, Nate Orchard. But, you know, so that that's kind of how you have to, to look at it. And uh, that's the hardest part is, you know, don't get me wrong, it's extremely, it was extremely awesome to go down there and watch and, and have a great time and, you know, see these guys work out. But on the other hand, it's, it's kind of a wake-up call because it's like, wow, like, now here's where the fun begins, because, so to speak, because now you have to start trying to find out where these guys fit. Um, you know, another another example that I can use is Shaq Thompson. I felt like Shaq Thompson looked the part. He looked like Tarzan, but his workout was like Jane. Uh, he did not work out very well at all, uh, especially last week when we, you know, I'm boasting because I hear it, him speaking about it on a radio show that he expects himself to be nowhere below but a four five, uh, and he comes out and runs a four six five forty. Uh, at a guy who's two hundred thirty one pounds and expected to be a linebacker or a safety, you know, four six yeah. is not good. Hey Josh, uh, you know I got one for you too. I mean, you know, Bernard McKinney looks like Tarzan. You know, the guy six four two forty six. Those are official from the combine. Uh, but he looked his tape right. A little bit of a finesse player. Doesn't play like Tarzan, and at the combine he sure didn't test like him either. I mean. Uh, official 40, I'll give him this, his 40 time was a little bit faster than most linebackers, but when you are 6'5", 240 pounds, or 6'4", 246, I mean, he only had 16 reps on the bench press, Josh. And all I want him to do is be average, just hit 20. 23 is average. Yeah. He benched 16. And that's yeah, – a lot of other people, it's cool. But, but when you are a certain size, you have certain responsibilities, one of those is benching in the 20s. And it's really not as hard as I'm making it sound. Uh his vertical is very good, you know, some broad job. When you look at how he tests and how some of the things he did turned out, I mean, what if, what if you just took McKinney late second and made him an edge rusher, just like threw him in there, um, just made him strictly an edge rusher? I mean, obviously he's not going to be able to set the most physical edge against the run, but, <laughs> like, if you just make him rush a passer, I mean, that's really the only trait he has that can keep him on the field every down. Otherwise, you might say he's a situational pass rusher. Yeah. Um, well, look, let's face it. There are plenty of guys that just enjoy working out, and there are those that just find it to be boring, tedious, and, and quite a drag. And I think that the combine is going to uh, hopefully weed out the ones that enjoy working out from the ones that don't. And then your NFL scouts and your player development people have to make the decisions about these people uh, once you begin putting your boards together. Absolutely, and that's why, you know, strength and conditioning coaches are just so key and some of these scouts, because you're right, player development is what it's all about. You can draft the right guy, um, but if he doesn't have the mindset, if you don't have the team that can develop him physically with the right program, you're exactly right, John. Yeah, John, you know, I agree the same way. And to, to go back to what you said, Montel, uh, about McKinney, he is a guy that I wanted – he was a guy that I was – wanting to see um, because, like you said, his tape doesn't wow me. I'm not wowed by him. And that's why uh, when me and you have talked, uh, you know, one of the million times that we do, I was so shocked 
about where some people are seeing this kid go. Because in my opinion, yeah, he looks great. He looks the part. He looks like an NFL linebacker or a stand-up defensive end. But in no way, shape, or form on God's green earth does his tape correlate to being a first-round talent. Um, which is, you know, in Mike Mayock, you know, I sat in a press conference with Mike Mayock after the, uh, you know, after the session. He said it best about Shaq Thompson. Look, athletically, Shaq Thompson is a first-round pick. He's a guy that has first-round talent athletically, but in terms of position, he's probably a guy who's going to be a second- or third-round pick. He probably has that type of production, is a second- or third-round production. So that's it's going to be I, interesting and dicey heading down the stretch of the snow days. I think he kind of sabotaged Shaq Thompson because he had him listed as a safety, which is something you can do with him. But to me, that's package specific. Um, you know, I tweeted out just the other day, it worked well. You can use him in like a big nickel package as a safety, a strong safety, something like that. But uh, truth be told, is he's a linebacker. And I think what makes his trade so great is because they're mismatched, you know, for what you expect most linebackers to be. They'll cover tailbacks better. They have the fluid hips to run with them. He can he can cover some of these tight ends better. I mean, obviously not the Rob Gronkowski type. I mean, who can really cover a Gronk? But you know, some of these receivers across the middle who are quick and and and, and know how to uh, you know turn their hips and move these tight ends. These other guys, you know, he can single up man on man against these guys. So to me, what makes his play great is what he can do from the linebacker position. If you judge him as a safety. He may be a second or third rounder, but it all depends on what you want to do. And like I said, I think he sabotaged him. Does he have the flexibility to play safety? Sure. But he hasn't realistically played there very much at all over the last four years. So he kind of did him a disservice. Uh, and in a very not-so-exciting linebacker class, at least for the first 50 picks, I mean, why not, you know? <laughs> I mean, so I, I agree with that part of it. Very exciting talent, definitely a first-round talent. But if you're going to play him at safety, I can see eye to eye with that. Yeah. Yeah. But one guy who blew, in my opinion, and again, you know, Montel, you, you virtually can just sit back and you know, sip on some tea, so to speak, because I've told you some of this. But, uh, John, you know, one guy who really blew my mind when I was down there was Eric Kendricks, the, you know, the outside linebacker from UCLA. Uh, I personally felt like he had the best day. Um, he ran what I expected him to run, um, but the thing with him was his on-field drill. I wanted to see how he looked in space because this is a guy who people are coding could be a three-way linebacker. You know, he could be a stud. He could be, a you know, lined up in an, as an inside linebacker, or he could be a guy who plays kind of a will or rover range, uh, which is, a you know, your outside linebacker that basically plays in space. It's like an extra DB. Um and he he did the he looked the part. I mean, he did it. He did everything well. Uh, matter of fact, his drills. I thought he had the best drills out of any linebacker who was there, um, including the the guys who did the tweener uh, workout drills. Um, I, I thought he was phenomenal, and I thought he really helped him stock. And in my opinion, I do think he is going to be in the late first round pick discussion now. Um, you know, a guy who I was kind of disappointed about, you know, other than Shaq Thompson was Denzel Perryman. Uh, I expected him to look a little bit better in his drills, and he didn't. Uh, a little stiff-hipped, um, little, you know, a little slow. Uh, you know, the, overall, you know, the running, you know, out of all the groups that I had a chance to see, the running backs and the linebackers were the most disappointing to me. Uh, nobody really stood out and separated themselves. Uh, nobody really 
made some noise. Uh, you know, of course, you know, David Johnson made noise, but he's been making noise since the senior bowl. Uh, but he didn't make really any more. Uh, I felt like he was just the guy that was uh, there. And the same thing can be said about Eric Kendricks. Um, you know, the, the edge rushers were, were phenomenal. Those dudes, I tell you what, I know you're going to go out there and watch and see a lot of mock drafts in the coming days. Uh, they are going to be very loaded with edge rushers in the top 15. Uh, I just have that feeling because I felt like all of them, with the exception of Shane Ray, uh, did everything to help themselves. And, of course, uh, you know, that obviously wasn't Shane Ray's decision to sit out. Uh, that was a me- uh, medical decision. But, again, uh, he flat-out killed it. Um, I thought all of those edge guys did it well. But going to the, you know, going to the DBs, the guy who I thought stood out the most was not Byron Jones, the guy that everybody can't shut up about. It was Trey Wayne. <laughs> this dude proved to me why I have him listed as my number one corner, and in my, you know, in our, you know, my first edition of the mock draft, put him in the top fifteen to the Miami Dolphins. Um, he weighed in, you know, he weighed in at 186, six foot even, uh, a, sh- a shade over. I think he was six and three eighths or something like that. Uh, so virtually he was six foot, uh, 186 pounds, long armed. Uh, he did high reps on the bench press, but the thing that I've never seen on his tape was how fast can this guy run? You never see it because he plays in press. He's never really had to. And in the Big Ten, there aren't really, with the exception of Devin Smith. There aren't really a whole lot of receivers that are going to really test this dude's speed. So I wanted to see how fast he could run, and he didn't disappoint. Uh, I mean, four three two was the you know was his official time, and four three five was you know the unofficial second forty time. Uh, so he's virtually, in my opinion, locked himself to to be the number one corner. Uh, another guy who had a great weekend was uh, Jamar, uh, Jamarius Randall. Uh, safety at Arizona State. Uh, he really helped him stock uh, his stock this weekend. Uh, Jaquisti Tart from Sanford helped his uh, stock this weekend. Four five forty. Gerard Holloman, I felt like hurt his stock a little bit. Had a little bit of a slow forty. Uh, Kevin White was the same thing. I thought he was going to be a blazer. And I think he had a four five forty. Uh, then of course Marcus Peters was the biggest disappointment to me. Um, a guy who's been out since November, I expected him to run a whole hell of a lot faster than what he did, and I expected him to be a little bit stronger and a little bit more in shape, and it just seemed like he wasn't at all. So, um, you know, I don't really know where to place him right now, but Trey Wayne... Well, let's face it, all these guys still have one more shot with their own pro days that'll come up in in March and probably in the early part of April to, uh, uh, to either move themselves up or cement their status wherever they, they may uh, fit. And it also seems to, 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 to be that uh, if the running backs and the linebackers were not as good during the combine as people would have hoped or thought they could be, then it may open up the first round to offensive linemen and maybe even defensive linemen to, uh, to raise their stock and put themselves in a position that maybe before the combine uh, nobody thought they could uh, raise themselves to that level. I, I think so, but I, I doubt it. Just because, you know, even though I say that the, the linebackers and the running backs weren't impressive, uh, and they're, you know, with the exception of the running back class being somewhat loaded, in terms of finding the elite talent uh, or a guy that you know you're going to love in your system, I mean, let's, I'm going I'm to be honest with you right now. Uh, Shaq Thompson is not going to get out of the first round. Somebody's going to take him. Uh, that's 
a no-brainer because he's versatile. Uh, he's going to fit into anybody's scheme. Uh, and I wouldn't put it past Minnesota to draft him at 11 still. I, I really wouldn't. Would I like that after his workout? Not as much. I mean, I would, I would enjoy it because that would be a great defense. Uh, but he, he's not getting out of the first round. Uh, and the same thing can be said for Shane Ray. Uh, this offensive line class, on the other hand, it's somewhat hey, – it, it's a little risky. Uh, you know, the big three for the offensive tackles, in my opinion, Eric Flowers, Lowell Collins at LSU, and Brandon Sharif, they all have the potential to be top 15. I have two of them going in the top 15 in, in my first mock draft, and I'll probably keep it that way in my second. Um, you know, a little bit of a spoiler alert. But in, in terms of finding that that talent, the real talent, in my opinion, is interior-wise. Uh, you know, Cameron Irving, uh, versatile, could play left tackle, could play right tackle, could play guard, and has played center at Florida State. Uh, Ali Marpet from Hobart, that's a guy who's going to be a third or fourth round selection. Um, he's, a, he's a rare guy. He reminds me a lot of uh, Brandon Fusco coming out of Slippery Rock a couple years ago. The Vikings took him in the fifth round. Uh uh, Lakin Tomlinson, uh, offensive guard for Duke. And that's a second-round guy, second, third-round guy. Um, you're going to be able to find a little bit more of the tackle class, you know, Cedric Obudi, um, some of these other guys, you know, they're going to be where you expect them to be, which is in the second or third round. Um, but that elite talent, you're not going to pass it when you can. And the same thing is going to be said for the running backs and the linebackers. Uh, again, Melvin Gordon didn't run a fast 40, but his tape is a hell of a lot faster than what he ran straight line speed. He's not getting out of the first round. And if he does, I'm going to be surprised. Uh, if he, matter of fact, if he gets out of the first round, uh, I'm going to call the Indianapolis Colts and tell them they made the worst decision of their life because if he's on the board at 29, they have to take him because they need a running back. Because you, you can't convince me with Boom Heron that they're going to win a championship. That's just not going to happen. Um, it does appear, though, that we're talking about a draft when you uh... – I talk about the marquee offensive positions. There may be only two quarterbacks are taken in the first round and two running backs may be taken in the first round. And then after that, it becomes uh, wide receivers. It becomes uh, linebackers. It'll become defensive linemen. It'll become offensive linemen, or it'll become something else. But it does appear that with the quarterbacks and running backs, you're only looking at two guys in the first round. So for a lot of these teams, particularly toward the, the bottom of the draft order, uh, drafting the best athlete is really going to become – uh, their mantra for their their first round pick. Yep, and, and I do see it. Uh, you know, I'm not the biggest and, fan of best player available. Uh, well, I with, I think in this draft, draft Josh, I think in this draft you kind of have to. Uh, well, you kind of either because if you draft a need, some GMs are going to get fired this draft. Well, let me, let me just I'll say it again. If you are drafting for a need in these first two rounds solely for need, not even looking at the value on the board. You can get yourself fired in this draft. I mean, we're talking about quarterbacks why... everywhere. We're talking about linemen where they don't belong. By the way, other than maybe Sherpa Collins, I haven't yet made a decision. I don't think you take an O-lineman in the top 15 if it's not one of those two guys. And if both of them go in the top 15, they should be the only ones going in the top 15. You know, and, and that's why I say with an asterisk because – like me, you know, an example, our first mock draft, we both have Brandon Sharif going number three. Is that going to happen? Is he the best player available? No, not, not in a long shot. But in terms of their need, he is the best player available. And that's why I think in this draft, especially when this is not the draft to trade up, um, 
on last year, the Philadelphia Eagles, because eh, you want to get rid of your entire draft to get Marcus Mariota. I understand that. Um, well, more uh, man, Josh, I, I think you've just answered your own question. This could end up being a draft, particularly when you get to the bottom portion of it, where you find teams trading down because, frankly, there isn't anybody there that they want to use that first-round pick for. And so instead, they'll try and gain themselves some multiple picks toward the, uh, the middle part of the process or even toward the end of the process uh, to try and make some hay there at a cheaper rate. I, I think the only position you would see that is the last five because this, I mean, this talent, there is, a, there is enough talent. Well, there, all right, and we all know who the last five teams are, and we know what they did. They all were playoff teams. They all made significant nope. runs. Uh, so for those five teams in particular, um, maybe they are looking at this draft that way, that it's not that strong, it's not that deep. And so trading down or even trading for picks uh, for the 2016 or even the 2017 draft might make more sense than using a first-round pick in this one. And I think the only teams who can do that are going to, and I don't know because I don't, you know, we don't obviously have access to their to their needs or to their department, are going to be the teams that know they don't need to build through the draft. Um, but realistically, uh, I'm not a fan at all of trying to get rid of your picks, uh, especially if you're going to be given, you know, Buffalo Bills, prime example, uh, and even the uh, Indianapolis Colts, the year they traded for Trent Richardson. Uh, I do not believe you should be giving up the next year's draft pick for a player or well, for I, another position. Um, I think I think with Josh, I think what John is more alluding to is you know trading picks, uh, moving down, and acquiring for a later date. Uh, teams like the Patriots do this all the time, and they made a killing doing it. Uh, so I, I think if you can, you know, in this draft especially when you get down to that last third, so players 24 to 32, there might be only one or two players with a real first-round grade there. So, yeah. And I, I, mean, and I agree can, with you there, yeah. Montel. And I think I might be a little blind to it because I don't, I don't see this draft as a draft where you trade up or you trade back. But we do know there are going to be those teams that are I mean, going to trade up. There's a sucker born every minute, Josh. You know, if you're if – you're, uh, Say if you're a, a Patriots fan or if you're a GM of the Patriots and someone says, hey, we want to trade up and get Carl Davis because he's so star-spangled awesome, we're going to go get him, and we're going to, move, we're going to give you two picks to move maybe to the second round, uh, maybe pick seven. Do it. Move back eight picks so they can go up and fall on their face, <laughs> and then you can get two more picks to spend later. So I'm with you. It's not like you say – take your you know your pick out here and say, hey, we don't want it. What's it going to get for us? But there are teams that trade up all the time. Like we saw the Browns trade back uh, into the first. Or no, they actually used the first. We saw the Vikings, you know, trade back into the first. Now, that was a good move. Don't get me wrong. But as you see some of these players fall, if teams have them higher up on the board than they should be, you know, they risk things to trade up and go and get them. You know, and, and you know, the Titans did it. Uh, Tim Tebow was selected that way. So, I guess I'm not building the greatest case here for the teams that do trade up, but for the teams that trade back, you do gain something. Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I can agree with you on that one. Um, again, uh, to be honest, it's really too early for us to even start speculating. Um, but, again, I think this is more of the draft where you have to view it as the teams who trade up are obviously trading up for a good reason. Um, but I, I don't think you would trade back. Um, I think this is the draft where – you sit where you are, and you just get out like a bandit and, you know, lick your wounds if you have to. Um, 
But again, it's way too early to speculate. Um, but it, it does make for good conversation. But with that being said, folks, uh, we're running out of time here on our on our weekly show. I just want to say thank you again for for tuning in to NGSC Sports Radio and NGSCSports.com to take time out of your evening to listen to us. Again, thank you, John and Montel, for being on the show with me this evening. It's always great having you guys on. Tune in next week, same time, same place. With that being said, you guys have a good rest of your week.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.